Episode 170. We've got a couple of professional fisheries biologists talking about a real danger to largemouth and smallmouth bass populations across our country. A little bit of a silent killer could be coming to a lake near you. Let's talk about why we need to worry about this and what we need to do to stop it. Enjoy the episode. This week, the Hello Bass Bass Fishing Podcast is brought to you by Arsenal Fishing. Arsenal Fishing offers premium custom-made performance apparel and tackle. Arsenal delivers a wide variety of custom-designed baits, accessories, and tools, along with unique utilitarian apparel for all outdoor enthusiasts. As part of their support, you can use code HELLABASS15 to save 15% on all purchases at arsenalfishing.com to support the show. Now let's get back to helping you catch more bass and suck less. If you guys love smallmouth, like I love smallmouth, and even largemouth, and you want to see them around so that you can fish them for decades and your kids and your grandkids can fish them for decades, then you might just want to listen and get some education tonight. i got a couple of good guests coming on, and I'm, we're going to talk about why you know smallmouth may be in a precarious position in some parts of this country, and who knows how far it could go, and we're going to talk about what that threat is. And then at the end, maybe we'll even talk about some just general fisheries questions. So I'm going to bring in our, our experts. Now, I'm not going to sit here and bloviate and make stuff up, but I'm bringing people that really know what they're talking about fisheries. So we've got uh, Lawrence Dorsey and Steve Sammons. What's going on, guys? Hey, good evening. Beautiful evening. Cool. Yeah, awesome. So uh, we'll just start. We'll give the guys uh, so first of all, uh, tonight's Hell of Ass Live, presented by Arsenal Fishing, boosted by Powerhouse Lithium, as always. There's some discount codes down in the bottom and some links if anybody wants to support the stream and support the partners. But otherwise, we're going to get into talking about what the threat is to smallmouth bass. But first, we're going to let Lawrence and Steve introduce themselves so you know that they got a little bit of credibility and it's not just some random guys talking about this. So, Lawrence, why don't you go first? And then, Steve, you can go go next. Sure. Um, thanks again for having us. Uh, like I told you earlier, full disclaimer, I'm fighting the crud a little bit here. So my voice is a little bit off. Um, do the best I can. I think I'll be okay. But uh, I'm Lawrence Dorsey. Uh, I'm currently a regional fishery supervisor with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Uh, I've spent 26 years with the agency, held uh, several different positions. I started out as an assistant district biologist, did that for about three years. Um, I was up in the northwest corner of North Carolina, where I got to work on the new river, the headwaters of the new river, which is pretty cool. So that's really good smallmouth water. It's even better when you get into Virginia, but it's it's good smallmouth water in North Carolina. Um, then I, I promoted down to the, the Piedmont, the, the center part of the state, and spent the bulk of my career as a district fisheries biologist working on reservoirs, working on black bass, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later on as to how I got involved with Alabama bass. Um, and then within the last couple of years, I promoted once to regional re, uh, research coordinator, did that for about three years, and then for almost two years, getting close to two years, I've been a regional fishery supervisor here. So um, and now the, the folks that work with me do a lot of the groundwork, but they're out there doing the work right now on on assessing our bass populations and particularly as it relates to the spread of Alabama bass. So again, uh, glad to be here tonight. And another disclaimer, Steve and I have known each other, worked together for, golly, it's getting close to 30 years. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, our careers intersected a long time ago. And, you know, it's not the topic we probably wanted them to intersect on again, but they have. And uh, so here we are. 
All right, Steve. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I am currently a research fellow at Auburn University. I run a fisheries lab here uh, that we, we kind of, I don't want to say specialize, that might be a wrong word, but we, we have done an awful lot of, of uh, native black bass work um, in the last 15 years, particularly. Uh, before that, I was a reservoir, mostly a reservoir person. My background is in sport fish management. Um, I uh, uh, went to Virginia Tech for my undergraduate, um, South Dakota State for my master's work, uh, worked at Tennessee Tech for five years, which is where Lawrence and I ran into each other. Uh, he got his master's degree working on the project that I was kind of supervising. And then I made my way down here to Auburn, where I did my PhD and haven't left. Um, yes. So I, uh, like I said, I've, I've worked on an awful lot of bass species. Um, and uh, I'm living in the state where Alabama bass are actually native, which is getting to be an increasingly small part of where they're actually found. Cool. So, and I guess for the, like the, the people that really want to see the science and like get into the, the, the stats and the graphs and all that stuff. I do have a link to their research findings and papers. It's probably a little dry for a live stream, but for those that are really interested and want to like, you know, test the science. And I'm sure there's, I think your guys is probably contact info and stuff is on there as far as people want to reach out and have questions. Um, but I guess let's see here before we, uh, let's see. Um, Chuck Murray wants to say, Hey Lawrence. So, um, Hi, Brian Chuck. says we all sound sound good and look good. So there you go. Don't have to worry about your, your voice, Lawrence. They're saying sounds good. Um, but I guess, Aaron, the question is, what what are smallmouth and to some degree largemouth, I think, under attack? You've kind of mentioned it, but like explain kind of a high-level intro. What What is the problem and what are we worried about here? Yeah, I'm going to let Steve give you just a little bit of history on Alabama bass because like he said, he's he lives and has worked for many years where they're native to, which is – it's a good thing. Um, and then talk a little bit about the spread issue, and then I can start talking about some case history stuff that we've seen recently. Yeah, so I guess the first thing we should say, what is an Alabama bass? Um, so black bass management and biology ecology has gone, undergone a pretty significant uh, revolution in the last 15 years, mostly in uh, nomenclature and taxonomy. Um, as, as our analytical methods increase, particularly genetics, we were able to revisit some things that were suggested or postulated 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, by folks, uh, who wandered around the Southeast, just picking up bass and saying, Hey, this looks like this, this looks like that. Um, and. And some of these fish kind of look pretty similar, um, but there's subtle differences. And, and um, so these guys, uh, mo most of that work was done by two folks um, named Bailey and Hubs, that's their last names. Um, they are really the, the grandfathers for the most part of black bass taxonomy. And they're notable in that this all happened in the 40s. And so everything they did was nothing with genetics. It was all basically field biologists going out, splashing around in streams, 
catching these fish and doing very minute detail work on them about like how many scales do they have down their lateral line? How many fin rays do they have? All that kind of stuff. And so they could go so far and no farther kind of a thing, if you will. And so in the late 2000s, we started, certain people started revisiting some of this and tacking on like, you know, they would, they would say things in some of their old manuscripts, like we think something's going on here and someone should look at it. And I think they suspected that that might happen before the end of World War II, but it actually didn't happen until the 21st century. You know, I mean, literally, it got put on a shelf and forgotten. And um, so Alabama bass is one of those new species that used to be considered a subspecies of spotted bass. Spotted bass used to be separated into two subspecies. Uh, the northern spotted bass, which a lot of folks call Kentucky, spotted bass and the Alabama spotted bass, which was really found pretty much in Alabama. They're native to the Mobile Basin, which is about 75% of Alabama. It's, it's all the rivers that come together and exit into the Gulf of Mexico um, via the Mobile River and the Mobile Bay. Uh, so a lot of people also for a while called them Coosas, right? That's same that's fish, right. right. So the Coosa River is one of the bigger rivers in the Mobile Basin. It happens to have a series of big reservoirs along it that are real popular for fishing. And so it grows these things pretty big. And so because I, I suspect this is what was going on anyway, it's hard, always hard to tell where colloquial names come from because, of course, it's just or organic thing that happens over time. But because the Coosa River reservoirs were kicking out all these big fish, I think they tended to just start making it Coosa spots, you know, um, or something like that. So I've heard them called that. At least in like, what I would say though, in like the, in the tournament bass mm -hmm. fishing culture, right? You would say Kentucky's or regular spotted bass, or you'd have like Coosa bass or Coosa spotted bass. And that was how, so I mean, like if you've been in, you know, fishing tournaments in the last 10, 20 years, that's typically the delineation up until now, I would say within maybe the last five years, I'm starting to hear this emphasis on the Alabama bass. Right. Yeah. So they were formally described in, as far back, way back in, I think 2008 or seven, I don't remember which, um, but it takes a while for that to catch on. Heck, even for us, I mean, you know, uh, Georgia currently is right now going back into their database and formally changing all their stuff from, from the Mobile Basin into Alabama bass. They just kept it as spotted bass. Um, but um, this is one of those things where, okay, we almost certain that they were new species, different species. It's just no one ever bothered to do it. So if, you, if, if uh, people who fish for these fish in general, like spotted bass in general, okay, so... The Kentucky ones, the ones that we had in Tennessee that Lawrence and I worked on when we were there, and he was part of his master's work. So we, we sampled a reservoir for six years, seven years, everything known to mankind, collected thousands and thousands of fish. Biggest one we ever saw was 16, maybe 17 inches. They were eight, nine years old. Um, you come down to the Mobile Basin, they get six pounds, seven pounds. They grow as fast as largemouth bass. Uh, they're they're geographically separated, so you know spotted bass, the, the Kentuckys are in the upper middle 
a lower Mississippi River basin and a few Gulf Coast streams over in Lake Texas. And the Alabama bass were only in the Mobile Basin. They never, ever mixed, if you will. And so that's another thing that, you, that can tell you about species. And, and the more we're looking, that's, that, that's what you're, a lot of these species that, we're, that we have now are breaking down along geographic boundaries of river basins where they never um, mixed. So that's kind of where we were. And in the late 2000s, I started working on an endemic black bass found in the Apalachicola Basin called shoal bass. They're a river fish. They're, they, they superficially resemble smallmouth bass. Um, they probably don't get as big as smallmouth bass in that, when I say big, I mean the really big ones, like, you know, the eight to 10 pound smallmouth bass. You do not see that for shoal bass. However, they reach five to six pounds much more commonly than smallmouth bass do. And one of the things we saw is we started seeing a lot of this interaggression of Alabama bass and spotted bass, especially in the Chattahoochee River, which is the western part of that basin that borders Alabama. It is literally the next basin over from the Mobile Basin going east. So they're real close to each other. They had been put in there and there probably in the late or early 70s was the first time they found Alabama bass, the spotted bass, uh, the, the Kentucky bass, if you will, had been in there a little bit earlier, like 50s, 60s is the first time they were found. And they were intergressing with shoal bass to a pretty significant degree in the Chattahoochee. Um, and they started, we looked at some uh, red-eyed bass or another whole group of bass that live in small streams. Um, there are different species as well. And some of the cases they're having problems with those over in the Savannah River Basin, which is the border between South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, there's a species of red-eyed bass there. Uh, it's still not described yet, but it's called the Bartram's bass colloquially uh, after William Bartram, who was a naturalist that roamed the area in the early or late, late 1800s, um, that one of their main threats is intergression with Alabama bass that, that folks put in the big reservoirs that are along the border of those two states on the Savannah River. The problem is they don't stay there. They run up the streams and they're there. So, so we'd seen that and we knew one of the things that's true, um, I've told this folks before, you know, one of the weird things if you're in fisheries is when you learn for the first time that what we call bass are actually in the sunfish family. <clears throat> They're not actually true bass. That would be more like striped bass or, or mm -hmm. white bass or in or most of the true bass are actually purely marine. Um, and it always seemed weird to me that, you know, crappies are sunfish. And then of course all the sunfish are sunfish, right? And they all have that little pan shape to them and all. And then you have these bass that are torpedo shaped with these big mouths, they get really big. And they're sunfish too. And it's like, oh, that's really kind of weird. Well, one of the things we know about sunfish, they, they hybridize readily. You know, uh, anyone who has ponds and has a couple species of sunfish in there know that pretty much you have two species of sunfish if you do, let's just say, and you have a whole bunch of hybrids too. Um, they commonly do that. Well, the, the truth is, is that's what bass do too. All you have to do is move one from one place to another outside their range and the first thing they start doing is hybridizing with the locals and so so we knew this 
And here's these streams and rivers where this is a problem. Um, but in, like in the case of the Chattahoochee, they've been there for 50 years and we're just starting to study them. So we don't really know how much time it took for us to get to here, you know. And so I happen to be uh, one of the other things I have is that I am a, an editor of a journal, a scientific journal, a regional scientific journal. Um, and in 2015, I believe it was, a manuscript hits my desk from Lawrence about one of his reservoirs. And that changed everything as far as I'm concerned about what in the world is going on with these Alabama bass. And so there's my segue to hand it off to <laughs> Mr. Dorsey. And promise you, like, we'll get to this. I think to people in like, I don't know, Kansas, Minnesota, out west, maybe the northeast or wherever. Like this, I think we'll, we'll tie this all together on why almost all of us should be paying attention to this. And so just yeah. kind of a segue, like this is not just a North Carolina, Alabama problem. No. We'll get there, but we need to build up to it. So it yeah. this is an important education. This isn't like super sexy Gerald Swindle talking about buzz baits, but I think this is important stuff for all of us to understand. Uh, so go ahead, Lawrence. No, that's fine. And, and one guy that I listened to on some internet podcast has what he calls the so what moment. And we're going to try to get to the so what moment yeah. here soon um as steve mentioned you know I, working on um reservoirs down here i was working on lake norman which if you followed mlf they were just here um back in the spring um and the red the red crest event was here um largest reservoir in the state of north carolina is solely contained in the state of north carolina it's 32,000 acres um it's a little bit of a, a misnomer it's in the piedmont which is traditionally has a lot of productive reservoirs high rock lake is another one that uh, a lot of several Bassmaster Classics back in the 90s on. I also managed that lake for a while, so I'm real familiar with it. But Norman never functioned like a, a, a productive reservoir. It's, it's a very nutrient-limited reservoir. And so when you go back and you look at the history of it, it was impounded in the mid-60s or the early 60s. Um, when you start looking in the 70s, people were already complaining about how the bass fishing out there was terrible, the largemouth fishing, because that's all we had. And if you fast forward to the 80s, you start seeing some things in the files about anglers wanting spotted bass. Um, and, and because the largemouth weren't doing very good and they thought, well, if we just get these spotted bass, you know, and, and it never really said what kind of spotted bass. But then you started hearing rumblings about coosa bass. You know, what if we get these coosa bass? And again, journal or uh, magazine articles, word of mouth, these fish, you know, if we can just put them in here, they'll do great because they're doing great in acoustic drainage. And Lake Norman looks a little bit, some of these reservoirs look a little bit similar. So, and we kept saying to the anglers, don't do this. This is not a good idea. We're not going to do it. But lo and behold, about 2001, 2000 to 2001, we found the first, what at the time we thought were spotted bass. Again, Steve talked about the genetics. It really wasn't until about uh, 2013, 2014, that we were able to use genetics to confirm them as Alabama bass. But the whole time, once we, we found these fish in the lake, an initial sample from Duke Energy, who's the lake operator, who has an environmental science program there. Um, all of a sudden, when you started talking to the biologists there and we started seeing it, the Alabama bass number just kept shooting up. And so when we look at their data, which is, is in that paper, which is long-term sampling data where they go out every year and sample the same sites, by 2007, 
you had a flip in the reservoir. And what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean, there were more Alabama bass in their surveys than there were large amount of bass. And within about four to five years later after that, the jump was tremendous. It was a tremendous divergence between catch rates. And the sad news is, is we've never seen those lines cross back again. We've never seen largemouth come back to their pre-invasion levels. So that was a huge red flag. And that was really the genesis of the manuscript was talking to the Duke energy biologist, which one of them was a co-author on that first paper that Steve talked about. And I said, we got to get this out. Um, and they were willing to let me kind of run with it. Same time all this is going on, we're starting to see these Alabama bass. Again, what, what we've now found to be Alabama bass in other places in the state, um, affecting other systems that had large mouth in them. Sidebar to that is, is that we uh, share water with Georgia, Lake Chattooge, Lake Chattooge, and uh, talking to their folks, they're like, hey, we've got the spotted bass in there. They're going nuts. And our smallmouth bass in this reservoir are going away. And by the time I got on the scene in the late 90s, smallmouth bass had virtually disappeared from Lake Chattooge. Um, and so, you know, again, start tracking this thing, start talking to our other biologists. And then fast forward to the, the, the about five years ago, we started a statewide black bass genetics survey. Um, and it had several goals. One was to look at the uh, proportion of Florida bass genes versus northern genes and largemouth. That was one of the goals. But also to look at these other species like smallmouth bass, spotted bass, which we do have a few native populations of those. Because we were seeing what we thought were hybrids, but really, as Steve mentioned, the, the, the only conclusive way to do that is through genetics. And when we started getting these genetics, genetic results back, and especially comparing them to the, the field calls, what the biologist in the field was calling a smallmouth, and seeing that we didn't have as many pure smallmouth out there as we thought we did, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of Alabama bass genes, particularly in western North Carolina. So when we track all this, what we've seen over time to kind of give you the, the nutshell version is if, if, if an Alabama bass gets into a system with largemouth bass and there are no smallmouth there in that system, i.e. a Lake Norman, um, a Belouz Lake, which is another lake in North Carolina, a Moss Reservoir, which is a smaller lake close to Lake Norman, but in a different drainage. If they have the opportunity, they're going to run the largemouth into kind of the shallows, into the, the very shallow areas of the reservoir that are muddy, turbid productive areas of the reservoir where they don't seem to like that habitat, particularly the silty clay bottom, turbid water. That's one impact. And that's not to be taken lightly because it's it has had some dramatic effects in some of our reservoirs. The bigger one and, and probably the one that your viewers, particularly those in the, the Midwest and going out into the West where our smallmouth bass populations are you know, outstanding and they're native is what Steve talked about is the introgression and the genetic swamping where you get Alabama bass in these systems, not only are they competing, but they're interbreeding. And so over time, what you had is per smallmouth slowly but surely become pure Alabama bass. And it takes a while. Some cases it's it's quick in the sense of what you would think a time series should be. But Steve can comment on this a little bit as we go along. But Georgia, this is North Georgia reservoirs have already seen that. They just don't have any more smallmouth left in them. Um, and they got Alabama bass, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And no one's really sure of the timeline there completely. But that's the bigger so what in all this is if these fish get into a system where they're smallmouth bass, there's a high likelihood that they're going to interbreed and it's not going to go well for the smallmouth bass. 
so we've got just to kind of like back so we got two things right yep. we've got displacement of native species because they're they seem to in certain environments they're thriving and they're out yep. competing right and we also have intermixing and they're also displacing through that where they're basically um and maybe talk a little bit about how that works and like i know i think some of us are familiar with the mean mouth right which was such a large mouth in a spot or is that a what is small the mouth in a spot is they're in alabama really here when right so looking at what our mean mouths are they're small mouth cross with alabama bass mm -hmm. okay they're not are they always alabamas or are they ever well they can be the other one the kentuckys Okay. Yeah. Because like you, you see them on like the Ozarks, right? And that's more likely a Kentucky yeah. at mm -hmm. that point. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think the question too you're wanting to know is do they ever hybridize with largemouth? And we've seen that in limited cases, but what seems to happen is when they partition themselves in the reservoir into certain areas, there's just not that ability. They're not in the same places anymore to have that interbreeding. And that usually the first five years we'll see some limited hybrids between largemouth and Alabamas in our surveys. Once we get about five to 10 years, like Norman's a perfect example of that. We haven't seen any of those in our genetic surveys that we were doing in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, you know, 15, 17 years after the invasion. We just don't see them anymore. But we definitely see the smallmouth in Alabama crosses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so how does this happen? Um, and now, I'm not a geneticist either. Uh, there is a, a, a really interesting study that was go that was done in South Carolina. Um, so, and it was on the Savannah River reservoir, as I mentioned earlier. So, in the so those reservoirs got their Alabama bass a good decade to a decade and a half earlier than North Carolina. If not, I more. guess when you say Savannah River, are those like Hartwell and Clarks Hill? Hartwell, Clark yeah. Hill, uh, Strom Thurmond, um, Kiwi. Yeah, Kiwi. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they they've had a little bit longer to do their damage and um, and they've been studying them a little bit longer. And honestly, the reason they were studying them, studying them is because of that Bartram's bass because that's what we call an endemic species. It's only found in the Savannah Basin completely. I mean, that's the only place that disappear from there, they're extinct. And so obviously South Carolina has been very proactive about trying to figure out what's going on here. And, and you know, basically when they start hybridizing is what they found is, is that, um, the the hybrids i guess the one thing for sure we ought to mention uh, so fish generally are not like uh, mammals or something like that where hybrids are sterile that's not the case usually um they're they're perfectly capable of reproducing they might have reduced re reproductive fitness but they're certainly not sterile and they commonly reproduce um and so they reproduce um with either parental species or they can reproduce with each other and either way they pass their they pass those genes down through through mm -hmm. generations and as as they keep um as they slowly eliminate the um pure fish that you want you know the one that was there 
as more and more hybrids are, are being produced, you have a whole bunch of the pure invader, the Alabama bass, and you have and you start to have an increased number of hybrids. And the likelihood is, is that the hybrids are going to cross with the parentals and never with the one that's going away because there are just not as many of them. And through time, they literally assimilate the native genes into all the fish and they slowly just fade out just because of each generation, there's fewer genes. And, and through time, they've shown this in some of those reservoirs uh, and not nearly as long as you would think, like a 10 to 15 year window, it can go from, you know, having half hybrids and half pure fish to having 90% hybrids and 10% fish. And then it's not far from extinction at that point. Um, so it's one of those kind of scary little things that happens completely beneath the notice of not just anglers, but us, if we didn't have genetics, I mean, a lot of the hybrids, they don't often look, they don't, don't have to look like hybrids. Um, now when we think of like a mean mouth, that's a great example. When they, when you, they think of mean mouth, what we're usually talking about is what geneticists would call an F1 which just means they're the first generation. So the mean mouth is, you know, mom is a small mouth, dad was a spotted bass. So those are actually pretty easy to tell because they're 50-50 roughly. And so they often have kind of intermediate characteristics. But if one of those, let's just say, hybrid or, you know, crosses with one of the parents, then all of a sudden they can start, you know, those gen once those gene, um, proportions deviate from 50 50 and start becoming 60 40 or 70 30 or something like that then you have a lot of fish that are quote unquote hybrids that can look very much like one of the parentals species and so that's typically what actually happens because you only have the 50 50s for a short time because they all start hybridizing with each other and very quickly it becomes a mess and and yeah. so and a lot of times these hybrids are not desirable right they don't they don't grow as big they don't right they're not they don't flourish right they they tend to be they tend to start to be stunted and right like well they can be right you know and so um you know alabama bass are, are a weird animal in that so you have the coosa river basin which we talked about earlier and you have all these big fish in there i mean there's big four and fives and even six pounders every once in a while something a little bit bigger um and uh but the so we uh lawrence mentioned about productivity earlier the the fact is is coosa river system is a very productive river for whatever reason the geology or whatever i mean everything grows fast in those reservoirs they're all they all have phenomenal crappie fisheries you don't hear much about them because Catfish, everyone talks yeah. about the bass, right? But I mean, they have great hybrid striped bass and striped bass fisheries. Um, they have fabulous sunfish fisheries. They have great catfish fisheries. So, you know, that's a misnomer to think that it's the fish doing it. It's the location doing it. Um, and yeah. and those fish have, to some degree, evolved for decades to thrive in that ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, so the two main... Well, I guess on the upper half of the Mobile Basin, the two main rivers that come together to form the Alabama River is the Coosa, which everyone's heard about, and the Tallapoosa, which almost no one's heard about unless you're here. And I mean, they're really, literally a valley away. 
with some high ground in between them that separates them into two rivers. And they join each other just, just, just outside of Montgomery and become the Alabama River. Well, the geology of the Chattalapoos is different. It is nowhere near as productive as the Coosa River, even though they're right next to each other. They're, they're within 50 miles of each other at all times. Yet, you go into the Tallapoosa River and a four pound Alabama bass is memorable. Um, hmm. Most of them are two and three pounds because the nutrients aren't there. And the fact is, at least here in the Southeast, most of the lakes that the Alabama bass tend to do well in, and when I say well, I mean numerically, tend to be the ones with the lesser nutrients. And so what you have here, because now smallmouth bass, right, they don't do that as much. They, they now think of Dale Hollow Reservoir, you know, and, and think, you can think certainly of all the, the natural lakes up where you are, where, you know, they actually aren't usually that productive. Um, a lot of them border on what we call oligotrophic, which is the lowest nutrient level there is. And yet they get five pounds commonly. And it's no big deal for a smallmouth bass, you know. Well, Alabama bass don't seem to be that way for whatever reason. Um, and so if you think about the hybrids, what you're doing is you're crossing a fish that in these conditions can get six or seven pounds with a fish that's probably going to top out at three or four, and that's going to hurt your growth. And that tends to be what happens there. And, and so, um, and that's, that's, that's where uh, we, we worry about that for, for other things as well. I mean, the, the, the shoal bass are the same way. They grow really quickly if you leave them alone, but the hybrids don't seem to get as big because they can't. And that problem's even more exacer uh, exacerbated if, if it's the Kentucky bass that people move around. Um, and that, which is the problem we have in the Chattahoochee is, is that they're all a mix of everything anyway, but the Kentucky bass grow like nothing. I mean, like I said, 15 inches is about their top end. I mean, yeah. that's an eight or nine year old fish and they only live to like 10, like most. Yeah, three to three to three and a half pounds is about the max you're going to get that I've seen on a spotted bass. On yeah. True spotted bass. yeah. And so if they cross with something, they absolutely kill the growth. Because, you know, they, they're one of the slowest growing black bass species, to be honest. And uh, so that's usually what happens if you have a hybrid. I mean, you can have a little bit of hybrid vigor, um, but, but it's, it seems to be fleeting. It seems to be fleeting. And, and, and some of Lawrence's and North Carolina's data where they've looked at this more, more in depth uh, can tell, from what I remember, and he can tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, Initially, you see three and four and maybe even five pound Alabama bass. And then as the population increases yeah. and starts to get to equilibrium, those babies are gone for the most part. Um, because it was probably they were probably done in a vacuum in a, in a low density thing where the, all the food was in the world. So they grow big. And then, you know, they're very successful at reproducing. Um, you know, they are. Uh, like, like Kentucky spotted bass, spotted bass and Alabama bass seem to be two of the species of bass that can really live in a wide variety of places. Uh, you can catch them in streams that are just completely weightable. You can catch them in giant rivers like the Ohio River uh, for, for Kentucky bass. And they live in small reservoirs. They live in big reservoirs. Um, some of the work that, that 
uh, Lawrence did for his master's degree, we were looking at uh, what controls bass recruitment, you know, reproductive success in this reservoir, which has three native species of bass, smallmouth, largemouth, and spots. Uh, there weren't really enough smallmouth bass in that reservoir for us to do it on those. But we, we pretty much figured out what the heck was going on with the largemouth bass. I mean, it really was water levels in the spring. If it's her high, they have a really good year, you know, and if they're, if it's low, they don't. And it has to do with shoreline covers and all that spotted bass in that reservoir did not matter. They, they reproduced if the water was low, they reproduced if it was high, it didn't matter. And we don't, we never did figure out exactly why that is. I mean, but the implication is, is that they're not tied to the shoreline as much as largemouth bass. And that just points to the resiliency of this fish. Um, and so that's another problem is, is that there are some places they don't seem to make it, but those are the minority. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is like the kudzu of bass, which is what my wife calls it. Um, <laughs> you know, it literally can grow almost anywhere. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, I mean, to echo that, 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 that is the problem. Um, and, and in, at least in my state, I know in Tennessee and Virginia now, certainly South Carolina, Georgia, you know, these fish are not being moved by fisheries management agencies. Um, and that's a point that, you know, it, it's one of those, you, you hate to be accusatory, but it's the truth. Um, they're not being, they're being moved by people. Um, certainly once you get them in a ba river basin and a reservoir and it's high in that drainage, if there's multiple reservoirs like the Savannah or any of our reservoirs here in the Catawba system, they're going to move downstream. They just are, I mean, naturally. But when you have these interbasin movements, when they're moved from one basin to another, we didn't move them. Um, you know that anglers are moving them. And I, you know, that that's something to, that we really want to, to press hard on if we can is don't move these fish. It, it's as Steve said, some places they get dumped in, you know, they don't make it. Um, you just don't see them that, that much. I'm not really we were talking about this today on the phone. Um, I'm not really sure of any success stories of moving these fish. Um, no one's told me of one where all of a sudden the fishery was greater. You know, there might be a short term burst, as he mentioned. We saw that at Norman with some bigger fish. We had a state record. What we thought, again, pre-genetic work was a spotted bass that was caught out of there. I, I bet if I went back and pulled genetic samples, it's going to well, I know it would be an Alabama bass because we've never caught a spotted bass out of Lake Norman. But that was fleeting, as Steve said. And so you get this short term burst and then you get these long term problems that, you know, you're kind of stuck with. And we're, you know, the fish has moved west into Tennessee um, across you know North Carolina, across the, the Blue Ridge into Tennessee. Um, it's in a lot of East, Ten East Tennessee reservoirs now. They're, you know, they're not happy. Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency about having to deal with this. They see some of their really good smallmouth fisheries like Dale Hollow. Norris, uh, Center Hill, that people are familiar with, that are you know they're they're candidates for someone dumping these things in and and causing a lot of havoc. I mean a lot of havoc. So, um, you know, it, I don't understand it because in my mind, you know, like Steve said, I worked on spotted bass years ago, loved them working on them, but you know the biggest spotted bass never got as big as as the biggest largemouth bass, and that's true with Alabama bass. And what we see in a lot of these reservoirs is like Steve said, there's a bunch of pound, pound and a half fish swimming around out there. You're looking for numbers. You'll catch them. Um, if you saw the MLF tournament, you know, when they had cameras on about every boat, they were catching a lot of them. Um, they didn't catch many big ones, 
and there were a lot of fish that weren't scorable that were released. I don't really have, we didn't, we didn't, they didn't keep track of that. Or at least if they did, I haven't seen it. They may have, but that just goes to show you that, you know, when you get these fish in they're as Steve mentioned earlier, they're not, you can't pick the Coosa river reservoirs up and move them somewhere and expect, you know, the same thing to happen. It's just not going to happen. So I don't know if you guys know the answer to this, but I believe the big spots out in California, those are, the Alabama bass, right? But that was a government, right? The California did that, right? It wasn't, but that wasn't bucket biology, right? That was a uh, organized effort by the fisheries in California. Correct. So California, the whole Western half of the country, none of the bass are native. And so uh, this, these were decisions made a long time ago. Um, they actually brought quite a few different bass species in there. Um, they brought, of course, largemouth, um, and they put their smallmouth bass in there. They have spotted bass. I don't know why, but they did. Um, and they brought in Alabama bass. Um, and, and there's even uh, some red eyes in one river down in Southern California that I have no idea what anyone was thinking there. Uh, they get 10 inches long. They're pretty, but they're they're not something you would put in there. And so in their cases, they they they. Their justification for that, I'm sure, was here's all these artificial reservoirs that were created on these rivers. The rivers didn't have anything in them that transitioned the reservoirs. The rivers out there, you don't have a lot of native sport fish out west. If you take away the trout, the salmonids, there's nothing for the most part. And so back in the day, uh, it wasn't that uncommon for, for agencies to say, well, we need to create fisheries here. And so they did. Um, and as you know, I mean, some of those are extremely successful in terms of what they've created. Um, I mean, not even talking about Alabama bass. Think of the, uh, what is that, the uh, Sacramento Delta, Delta area where there's 12, 15-pound largemouth bass. Well, I mean, they were originally put in there. Um, they did quite well. Um, so some of those reservoirs in the uh, eastern part of California and the outside of the Sierras and the Central Valley and all that, uh, like Bullard's Bar, one of them, uh, they grow really big in there because they eat trout. Same reason why an off like Clear Lake has all those giant largemouth bass in it because they're trout eaters. Um, one thing we know for sure for anything, whether you're talking striped bass or muskies or <laughs> whatever, one of the most tasty morsels for all of ever to, to create giant fish is trout. If you can get them eating that, I don't know. I, I, apparently, they must be a, a million calories per trout because they really can grow some fish. And so those fish out there in California, those ones that get, you get all the headlines, the press, the 10-pounders, the 11-pounders that absolutely destroyed the current world record that was from its native range for a long time, eight pounds and I think three ounces from Lewis Smith Lake uh, right here in Alabama. I mean, it, it, it destroyed that by three or four pounds which is just crazy. And they were breaking know. it like every other weekend for a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so they're growing fish far beyond anything that we have in their native range. Um, but it's a very yeah. specialized situation. Yeah, um, and I think that was a, the later that they introduced those, right? And then like Rich here says that uh, Nascimento lost its smallmouth. So, you know, there are the uh, the Bullard's Bar and the New Maloney's that have these great stories, but it sounds like there was smallmouth and other bass that were displaced you know, within that too. So um. that's so typical. I mean, I, I tell folks this all the time. 
when something expands, something else loses Loses. generally. I mean, sometimes we can't tell what it is, but something loses. You usually don't have a situation where you can just have a fish expand and take over and everybody else is happy too. That's rare. Usually somebody's going to lose. And the one thing that, you know, the largemouth bass thing to me was really surprising because until Lawrence's study, I thought they were bulletproof. I didn't think anything could kick largemouth bass out, really. I mean, they are also a very adaptable critter. I mean, obviously, they're found in one-acre ponds to Lake Erie. <laughs> you know, they're found everywhere. Uh, and the thought that something could come into a 30,000-acre reservoir and in the course of a decade literally kick largemouth bass to the curb and say, see ya, you know, this is our, our home now was shocking to me, you know? So that's, I mean, that's really interesting that they could do that. And we're still not sure what the mechanism is there. But the terrifying part is what they do to the other bass species with the genetic stuff. Um, Because there ain't no going back from that. Um, You know, and uh, we're watching smallmouth bass fisheries disappear in real time. And what I mean by that is like every year they go, they look, there's fewer which is like, oh my God, you know? And so, uh, and it's again, that same scale thing. I mean, our, our, our friend, John Hammonds, who works for Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, the last, uh, we have like a two, twice a year call, which is really kind of a sob story almost of, you know, how, how crappy is our, is our day now um, thing. But basically they're watching the smallmouth bass disappear from Watts Bar Reservoir, which is the top reservoir in the Tennessee River chain and is not a small place. I actually haven't looked it up to see how big it is, but I've been on it. It's gotta be 40,000 acres, if not more. And I mean, how how could you imagine that someone could throw something into a lake that like that and just in 10 years watch a native smallmouth bass just go away? And so you're, 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 it, it's, it's a real threat. Um, and the scale had escaped me looking at what we were seeing here with the shoal bass and the red eye bass and admittedly smaller streams, isolated rivers, stuff like that. Um, you know, and then, you, then we started seeing this reservoir stuff and, and, the, you know, one of the things, one of the things in a biology, uh, bio- biologist framework so rivers are hard to sample streams are even harder to sample and we don't tend to have time series data we go whenever we can or we go for a very specific purpose or something like that the one thing that the reservoirs were able to give us that the river stuff didn't is the timing because a lot of these reservoirs get sampled every single year using the same gear at the same time of year by the states and it's there for a very good reason it's the, or a very definitive purpose. It's to track population trends and their data in North Carolina. And then we had some from Tennessee. We have some from some from South Carolina and from Georgia. They show the repeated pattern of not only is it a total takeover, it's an incredibly rapid takeover. Um, you know, by the time they reach a level that you detect them in your sampling gear, it's already too yeah. late yeah. <laughs> because the, the, the snowball is rolling down and is already halfway to being an avalanche. Yeah, absolutely. 
this is a question I saw earlier. I don't know. Is, is there a way as an angler you can tell the difference between a, a Alabama bass and a Kentucky? And is there anything anglers should be doing at a local level if you can? So, yes, there is a way. Um, it's not a pretty way, but it is actually a way. Um, they have different lateral line scale counts and they have different uh, around the tail skin scale counts um i will have to i'd have to pull that up to see exactly what it is um which i can do while we're talking actually uh but basically alabama bass have more and they don't basically do not overlap so when i say it's it's not pretty but it is definitive a lot of times these these counts in fish will overlap like and what i mean is is that like the range is like let's just say 60 to 75 for one fish and 55 to 65 for the other fish. Well, there's a lot of leeway there where you could get those intermediate. Well, these things don't overlap. Um, and so that's a pretty good way of telling them apart. There's so, a little bit of markings that are different, but I don't trust color because color really is variable. Fish can change the color like that. Um, and so the fish you catch does not often look like the same fish when you put it in live well for three hours. It's like has done something because they can, they can change their markings a little bit, the, the, their, their color. Um, so I kind of stay away from that. Although in the official description, they do, you know, on average, you know, spotted bass, uh, their, their, their lateral blotches that go down the side kind of coalesce into a line right before they hit a tail. And the Alabama bass generally continue to be blotches all the way down to the tail. But again, that is not something I would use because I've caught, you know, I've caught Kentuckys in places where they had to be Kentuckys because that's their native range that have the blotches all the way down. And I've caught Alabama bass that have that line. So, you know, um, but well, and, I, and just to throw in kind of the management side of it, I mean, so in our state, spotted bass, my Alabama bass are native to just a small fraction of the southwestern part of the state. And so when we started getting all these and to the point of how do you tell them apart? Um, we made the decision from a management perspective to just open up Alabama bass and spotted bass size and creel limits. There's no size or creel limits on any, either one of them right now. So we're not, it's, there's not a burden on anglers um, to, to make a decision. And you know, that some of this is forcing our hands a little bit about how we do regulations because in some of these reservoirs in Western North Carolina, it, it's a fair question. Now, what is a smallmouth? Um, is, is what, you know, we thought our smallmouth, I mean, again, when we sample these fish in the field, pull a fin clip on them, send them off to a genetics lab and we assign them a species because typically that's what it is. And sometimes we, we might put hybrid down, but we really don't know. Um, and I know Tennessee is talking to John, they, they're having the same discussions about some of their fish, you know, as they go along, how are we going to manage these fish? And one thing too, and I, we may, we may. I may be jumping the gun a little bit talking about it, but I know with anglers, a lot of times when we talk about management strategy, stocking is one of the strategies. And it's it's certainly a tool that we have, but uh, Georgia's been doing it. They've been seeing very little limited returns on stocking smallmouth. We've tried some things. I don't think we're quite where we want to be yet to say that it's going to work or not work, but um, it's, it's, it's a very low low return proposition just in general and the problem we're going to have over here and we've already had it is 
we have very limited, if you look at the state of North Carolina, the area that smallmouth bass are in is, is pretty small. It's, let's just say for the sake of argument, about a third of the state. And so as these Alabama bass expand, we got all these hybrids out there. When we go to collect broodfish to spawn, now we have to genetically test them before we can ever let them spawn in a hatchery. Because again, if we don't, now we're just exacerbating the problem of putting more hybrids back out on the landscape. So you start looking at this and it becomes a real big can of worms. The, 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 the more you go into it as to, you know, how to handle this. And again, I, you know, I go back to it. There's a, there's a solution to this, not, not what we have on the landscape right now, but there's a solution to it not getting any further. And that's people not moving fish. Yeah. You know? so I guess that's it, the one like, so, like, don't move bass. Like that's... don't move fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't move fish. Don't move bass. Right. If you're going to take one thing away. Um, yep. As far as is, do you think there's like a big need for like education of like, cause obviously you guys have removed, you know, creel or, you know, bag limits and minimum length on spot, but is anybody actually harvesting them? And like, do we need a, an education movement? Like, you know, like there's tournaments on Norman all the time. Do we need to yep. have tournaments? Like, Hey, if you bring in a spotted bass, it needs to get like filleted and donated to a food bank, right? Like we need to like manage that population or encourage people or maybe encourage tournament anglers. Hey, that, you know, spotted bass tacos are a pretty good way to, you know, end of the day. Like <laughs> if you really want to see your largemouth right like there's only so much biomass in a lake and if there's yep. a bunch of 10 to 14 inch spotted bass if we don't consume some of them the largemouth aren't going to get any bigger <laughs> yeah we're yeah. definitely encouraging that and and it's funny because i know early on chuck murray said hi he's our state bass director and um and and he's a big proponent of of doing that of harvesting you know alabama bass um i know he's talked about that <laughs> there's chuck um and uh and so are we going to have population level impacts by doing that? Probably not, especially in these bigger reservoirs, but it certainly can't hurt. Right. I mean, we, we yeah. certainly don't want people throwing them back if they're, if they're wanting to take them home or they're wanting to eat them. I mean, don't want to, I, somebody mentioned earlier about throwing them up on the bank. I mean, not only do we not want you to do that, you really can't do that. Um, that would be against the, the state waste, fishing game laws. Yeah. Want waste. Yeah. Yep. Most state agencies, that's a no go. Um, you're putting yourself in, in a legal situation there, but, um, yeah, that's, that's a big, in terms, in terms of education. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously you're giving us a platform tonight. We're trying to spread the message. I, I sent you some signs today that mm -hmm. we've started putting up at our boat ramps and we, we're tailoring them to the, to the current situation. So if we are aware there's a reservoir that you know doesn't have Alabama's in it yet, where we've got, you know, do not stock. And then we've got some in reservoirs that, we know have Alabama's it's please harvest Alabama bass. Um, and so trying to get that message out to folks, I know other States are doing it. You know, we've just, yeah, that's our, that's our, that's our kind of our, our goal standard there um, for, for places we know. And we do have some really good largemouth bass fisheries in the state that currently do not have Alabama bass. And we're sure as heck hoping that that stays that way. So yeah, so we have, uh, so shoal bass anglers are very proactive, I will say this. And so when they found out about the the threat of, you know, quote unquote spotted bass, which are depending on the river, Alabama bass or both, um, uh, they have done a lot of, of peer pressuring of, hey, you need to keep all these fish if you catch them. 
And as a matter of fact, at least two or three spotted bass tournaments occur every year where it's a kill what you're catching. So they have a fish fry at the end of their tournament. Um, uh, one happens every year on the Flint River, and I think two of them happen over here on the Chattahoochee. Um, and yeah, biologically, is that going to do anything? I'm not sure. But I mean, I find it valuable that it's just putting out a message that these things are bad. <laughs> you know, you know, if, if you're having a catch and kill tournament then that, that involves bass, there's a pretty good reason for that. And I think it kind of sends the message that you don't want these things. You know, we we have them. We're not going to get rid of them anytime soon, but but we're going to go out and kill a bunch of them anyway. Um, you know, just just because. And if nothing else, it, it just shows that, you know, there's some pretty good buy in that these are not a good thing. And uh, so I don't know about reservoirs. I, I don't know if that's happens has happened yet. Um, but based on our work on the shoal bass, about 10 years ago, they started doing this. There's a guide service on the Flint River that hosts one every single year. Um, and a couple of little uh, like kayak bass clubs on the Chattahoochee that hold at least one or two every year. Um, and they get a big turnout and everybody has a good time. And, you know, they have the prizes and the whole, just the same old thing. But after that, everyone gets to eat um, fried or whatever spotted bass. Um, so, yeah, and, and dovetailing into that, I've, I've used this analogy before. You probably heard it. You know, the catch and release ethic came into bass fishing in the 70s into the early 80s. Um, it was a, an, an ethic that, you know, Ray Scott started really. I think he's probably, you know, can, the major player in that. But what I, the point I'm trying to drive home with that is that was not something legislated or mandated. That was something that anglers took upon themselves. And in this particular case, when it comes to moving fish, that same ethic or same similar ethic has got to take over because, you know, we can put all the regulations in place and we do have them. I, I don't know of too many states that, that don't have a some version of you, you're not allowed to stock fish without a permit um, right. in public waters. Yeah, our state has it. Everyone does. And but yet and still, it only takes a couple of these fish to be moved to create a major problem. So. We can do enforcement, we can do education, and those things we'll continue to do. But having said that, it's, it's really on the shoulders of anglers to, to start a movement to stop moving these fish because, you know, it's, it's a southeastern problem now. Um, Steve and I have sat around at times just talking about it, like, where would this end? I mean, what is the biological limit, limiting factors that would prevent this, these fish from spreading to, to wherever? I mean, you mentioned California, they were put in in a place that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles from their drainage. And they've they've managed to you know do well out there and they're isolated there. But who's to say that the Great Lakes, you know, some of these yeah. really good smallmouth rivers in the northeast. Who's to say up your way in Minnesota? I mean, you got some great lakes for smallmouth in Minnesota. Um, yeah, I mean, like, let's that, let's look at. You know, like you got Bullard's Bar and New Maloney's, right? Like geographically, they're probably not far from those those up and coming smallmouth lakes in Idaho. So, what if somebody wow. gets the idea that they want to take a Bullard's Bar, you know, bucket of three, four, two pounders, and all of a sudden put them in those up and coming trophy smallmouth lakes in Idaho? Yeah, think they, they think it's a great idea, and we'll have big smallmouth in big spotted bass. Right. The, the fact is, it'll they'll probably eradicate the smallmouth in short order. Um, 
So TK says, uh, to his knowledge, Lake McBride is the only lake in Iowa where spotted bass are prevalent. So that's that's pretty far north. I'm guessing the Iowa DNR didn't put them there. Uh, I could be wrong, but maybe they did. <laughs> but like now, you're talking about people are asking questions in the chat. How far are spotted bass showing up? I know they're in the Ohio River system, which connects to the Mississippi River system, right? right so they're native uh, there. Um, so. So the, and those are uh, Kentuckys mostly right now, I think, yes, right? And, right. Yeah. So, so, and I think that I, I'm not sure where Lake McBride is in Iowa, but but the uh, the part of Iowa that's in the Mississippi drainage should probably have them. That's probably about as far north yeah. as the spotted the Kentucky spotted bass native range was, um, and um, so they're in Iowa, and they're not, oddly enough, they're not much in the Missouri drainage, but neither were smallmouth, even though, even though, um, you know, that's part, theoretically part of their native range. Um, the Missouri is a, just a different river for some reason. There's a lot of things that occur in the Mississippi that don't occur in the Missouri. Um, so, so uh, yeah, spotted bass kind of are found mostly from, uh, like, the lower Midwest down into the central South, um, uh, the bottom half of the Mississippi drainage, if you will. Um, and uh, yeah, so see that that river there, that's probably in the drain, the range. Well, this that, is Mississippi yeah, right that, here. That, that, yep. that's the Mississippi that forms that eastern border. So it they could be native there. They also could have gotten moved from one to the other and they could have been stocked there possibly although I, I don't know if iowa would have bothered to stock spotted bass in one of its lakes because they just you know that's but like geographically right? like, this big. is not a big haul this no 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 four no. hours from chicago probably where you have potential like right like right yeah i mean well well if they're if they're spotted bass and this is something that 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 you know needs to be kind of driven home is you know steve talked about the lake that we worked on where we had a really substantial spotted bass population kind of a minimal uh smallmouth population but they were native there and we didn't have any issues with them i mean i don't remember right. seeing anything that looked like a hybrid you know and certainly not more than a couple if there were so that so so when they've evolved together there's that reproductive barrier you know and and because these fish haven't evolved together, they they they're being put together. There doesn't seem to be that barrier, and so I guess the question is, yeah, go ahead. Do we feel that? Do we feel that like spotted Kentucky spotted bass and the Alabama bass? If a if a spotted bass can live this far north, do we think an Alabama bass can live that far north? Or we think they're that close? Or like, we don't know how far yeah. Alabama north. Can we make some conclusions that if a spotted bass can live in Iowa, that a Alabama bass could probably thrive in Iowa if it got put there? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, and that's that's yeah. the problem, right? And what one we thing want to find to, out, right? No, like that's the purpose. No. Of this. Well, well, so there's there's two ways of finding this out, and and real quick, you know what Steve and I have kind of noticed too is if you have Kentucky's native and you put Alabama's in, they're going to work on them as hard or harder than they're going to work on the smallmouth bass. So it's kind of like the flathead catfish in my area. Um, a lot of problems today, they're not native. A lot of people think about them reducing red breast sunfish, but really when you go back to the history of it, they got rid of the native bullhead catfishes first. They love them first and then they're kind of a, a long afterthought at this point. But um, 
there's two ways to figure that out, really. One is to do some lab experiments where you put these fish in tanks and you alter the temperatures and, you know, whatever you variables you want to play around with to see what happens. And you can get some reasonable inferences from that. And the other is to stock them someplace and see what happens. And unfortunately, most of the time that's irreversible. So we would not want to do that. But so we know they live in Northern California, which mm -hmm. is it's, it's not a super harsh climate temperature wise. I mean, it, it does get chilly. I mean, they do have winter, but not not winter like I have. Right. Like, no, um, no, no. But I think not, there's not, reason to not believe drive out on if, the lake. Winter. If if Alabama boss got into the Great Lakes, there's reasonable belief that they could survive and thrive and compete. Yeah, I th I would say yes as of right now. That's what I would say. Um, what one of the weird? So this is one of the things that you pull back the the you know this is like you know the Wizard of Oz where we pull back the curtain and see what Oz is really like. So here's the here's the sad truth of black bass biology. <laughs> okay, so when this actually goes back to the project that Lawrence was working on for his master's degree when we got done with that. So we'd worked on spotted bass, the Kentucky spotted bass. So when we got done with that. He had graduated and he'd moved back to North Carolina and started his job uh, already. Uh, but I had to make the final report. So I was starting to, you know, start trying to put our results in context to what other people have found, what you typically do. Right. So spotted bass are found over almost a third of the country, Kentucky's roughly. I mean, that's their range. They're not uncommon. A lot of people live where spotted bass are. There was almost no work ever done on spotted bass. There was nothing to compare our results to because no one ever even bothered to even age the fish, let alone anything else. And I was like, boy, that's really weird, you know? And then, then I went back to working on largemouth bass and I did that for my PhD and did a few other things. And then all of a sudden I start working on shoal bass. And Boy, if I thought nobody knew anything about spots, no one knew anything about shoal bass or all these red-eye bass or swanee bass or Guadalupe bass. We know a lot about them now because they almost went extinct. So Texas spent a lot of money trying to figure out what's going on with them. But we have a lot of preconceived notions about black bass as a group that if you really dig into it and look are all almost all based on largemouth bass as if that is the gold standard and everything will act like largemouth bass. Well, we know already that's not true, you know, and that's easy to say, well, that's not true. But then the next question is, well, then what do these individual species do? What are their, what kind of habitats do they need? Where do they thrive? What are their limits? And until very recently, that was an academic question that was interesting, but we would never, you know, no one wants to fund that kind of stuff and we just don't do it. And now we have this fish marching up the eastern seaboard, destroying everything in its path, essentially. And the question, of course, is how far north can they go? And the answer really is we have no idea because we have no clue what the thermal tolerances are of this animal, just like we don't know it for Kentucky bass or any of the other 15 species of black bass not named largemouth or smallmouth. And so we're, we've gotten caught in the fact that we did all this work on small largemouth little less but still a lot of work on smallmouth bass we understand those two species rather well and we figured okay 
we know everything there is to know about black bass and now we realize we don't and now we have a real world problem that needs answers to those questions that we don't have them and i tell people all the time i don't know much about boards bar but the fact that they're eating trout doesn't exactly fill me with confidence that they're going to not like cold water so right. i'm not sure and if you think like right they're they are readily intermingling with smallmouth and we know smallmouth thrive right so like there is some like you know connect the dots here like they probably would be just fine so let's not find out <laughs> yeah yeah that's i mean that's that's the the truth is is that you know they have their sights set and again i act like they're the ones moving themselves they're not but you look at the the directions they're moving right now there are some world-class smallmouth bass fisheries <laughs> distressingly close to where they're found right now. Like the you New know? River and right? Well, like they're in the New watersheds. already. So they're in the New yeah. River. They're in so the, the New is like a ticking time bomb of like smallmouth like being not a great fishery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the Susquehanna <laughs> is not far away from where they are. That's about a 200-mile drive tops. Um, and if they get in the Susquehanna, then you have the Juniata and a couple other Western Pennsylvania rivers that are right there. And that's a very short drive from, from the Susquehanna to Lake Erie. Um, you know, and, and, uh, the guy that we were on the podcast for, uh, Joey, I think is Jody, Jody, White. Jody, White. Jody, Jody, he lives on Champlain. Well, I mean, you know, that's another place I'd be worried about like the whole Northeast. Um, you know, where will it end? Well, we don't know. Uh, where it's going to end. Um, but if I was sitting on world-class smallmouth bass fisheries right now, I'd be worried no matter where the heck I was. Um, because uh, we, uh, yes, it does yeah, run. Yeah, it does. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we were, we were talking, I guess this was just, we were talking about this on the phone earlier that I'm still waiting for the first time that Alabama bass show up somewhere and bad things don't happen. I mean, there is nothing. I mean, they, they even if they have a, a numerically dominant fishery like they do in, in, in Norman where, you know, everyone's catching the heck out of them. I'm, I'm not saying that's a good outcome because the largemouth bass are gone. <laughs> there are no largemouth bass essentially left there, you know? And so somebody always loses. And then the smallmouth bass so far, you know, if they've been in there any length of time, bad things are happening. I mean, you know, Lawrence can talk, tell you that a lot of the Western North Carolina reservoirs are, again, they're, every year they go, there's fewer of them. I mean, it's pretty clear that the Western North Carolina reservoirs are heading towards North Georgia land, which means there'll be no smallmouth bass in those reservoirs in another 10 years. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a scary thing. It, it is. And it's even more scary because the, the you know, professionals, if that's what you want to call us, the, us, the biologists who are supposed to know some of this stuff, we don't because no one's ever studied these fish in any meaningful way ever. Um, we've just taken them for granted. And uh, I mean, we could tell you how fast they grow. We know a little bit about their recruitment dynamics in reservoirs as far as like native range anyway. Um, but simple things like what, how cold can they tolerate temperatures? No, still don't know. Um, you know, we don't even know like where do they really spawn? What kind of habitats they spawn in? Um, we think that they probably spawn deeper. We think that they use rocks and stuff like that. In other words, we think that they spawn in a lot of the same places that smallmouth bass spawn in reservoirs. 
anyway. Which makes sense because that's yeah. how they would hybridize because they're mm -hmm. trying to spawn yeah. in the same places. You know, and uh, and the more we study all these black bass species, the more we realize that the ironically, the oddball in the whole group is actually largemouth bass. They're the ones that spawn in backwaters or in or in you know sandy areas and and build these big nests and defend them and all that kind of stuff. Um, an awful lot of these other fish, red eyes, uh, shoal bass, probably Alabama bass, probably spotted bass, they, they make very indis in, indistinguishable nests in any kind of habitat. Um, usually, though, more main lake kind of rocky steep, like not, not a gentle slope. Like, you know, if, if it's a rock bluff and there's a few shelves that they can spawn on, they probably spawn on those because shoal bass certainly do that in the river. Uh, you can't even see their nest. You see them defense a rock. You know, like, what the heck are they doing there? Well, there's a nest on that rock. I mean, so largemouths are actually the one, they're the weirdo of the group, if you will. And that's why I think we rarely see largemouths uh, hybridized with anything else because they are absolutely separate. But you name the other fish, you know, you, smallmouth bass, small, uh, spotted bass, Alabama bass, shoal bass, red-eye bass. They all, if they get moved on a top of each other they all hybridize you can move largemouth bass all over hell's half acre and they don't spawn with anything other than florida bass which is probably still a largemouth bass no which, which is i think answers ed's question northeast where i live north midwest we don't really have spots we have smallmouth and largemouth and they just don't occupy largely the same habitats when they spawn right if we had versions of spotted bass we would start to see hybridization pretty quick most likely that would be my guess you know, uh, smallmouth and largemouth have a long history and the Northeast, uh, that person that just made that comment, it's a great, great place. And so is the upper Midwest, Wisconsin and Minnesota. You have a lot of lakes. I've fished some lakes in Northeast Minnesota mm -hmm. that have both kind of hang out together and they're perfectly fine. They're perfectly happy. Um, they probably subdivide the habitat really nicely, you know, in those, in those Northern natural lakes that, you know, you know, this bear and I do, I'm sure, you know, largemouth like those weedy areas and a little deeper weed lines and stuff like that and the smallmouth are a little more on the rocky open shorelines and some in the weeds but not not usually they're bigger fish not not like the little guys um and so they just kind of separate they, they definitely tend to way. coexist in the summer and fall but they don't tend to coexist in the spring mm -hmm. yeah and so they seem to they seem to figure everything out that way um but it looks like uh you know, if you think about um, um, an old, old concept that I don't think really is used as much anymore, if you think about what they used to call an ecological niche or niche, you know, mm -hmm. you know the size of an area, you know, uh, or the, the tolerance, like, you know, so, so, you know, you have like largemouth being like that and smallmouth being like that and that, the spotted bass being more like this, where they can be over here, they can be over there and they're perfectly happy. You know, mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I thought of that. I think of them and Alabama bass the same way. I mean, they can, they seem to be able to figure things out in a wide variety of places and they probably aren't doing the same thing in order to do that. Um, and, you know, largemouth bass, we really do know kind of what they need to reproduce. They need stable water levels. They need these nice protected areas, um, shallow, relatively shallow sloping areas with some firm substrate, um, preferably a little bit of cover near, but not too much you know, where they have too many nest predators there, you know, and, and uh, uh, but I think 
bots and, and our Alabama bass can can spawn in a lot of different places. Um, so so I, I think that's kind of what we see here is that these fish are really, really adaptable. Um, there's a few things we think they don't like, really turbid water, dense weeds, um, and I would say really small things. Like you, I've heard of people in Mississippi I don't know why Mississippi, but a couple of people have reached out to me years ago and mentioned about, you know, that they have fished farm ponds that have, you know, spotted bass or Alabama bass or whatever they are. Um, and, and, but I would say my experience in Alabama is that's really rare. Like they just, you, you could throw some in there and they'll live, but they don't perpetuate for whatever reason. They're, they're not a pond fish for the most part. Thing. You know, really smallmouth bass aren't either unless you have exactly the right kind of pond. Um, I remember when I was in South Dakota State, uh, Dave Willis, the uh, big big name uh, fish management professor, who's uh, sadly deceased now, uh, he's, he had one pond outside of Brookings that had smallmouth bass in it, and it was an old quarry, tiny little old quarry thing. You know, it was like a cast long or a cast wide and like five casts long. <laughs> But it was like 20 feet deep. It like went straight down and they didn't even have large mouths in there. It was just them, you know, but that's an obviously a weird pond. I mean, if you think about your typical pond, it's usually weedy and soft bottom and all that. You, smallmouth aren't too happy in there either. And I don't think the spots are either. That's like the one thing they don't seem to like, but that doesn't help like, you. But, because but they do like to be, somebody asked about flow earlier and the, the, the Alabama bass seem to do just fine. and heavy current right like right so you know one thing to keep in mind when you start talking about the whole south half of the country below the glacier line if you will is there are no natural lakes down here and so all the bass are actually originally river fish that make the adjust some at least make the adjustment when we impound them and turn them into a lake uh, largemouth bass have no problem with that. Our small smallmouth bass don't have a problem with that. Our spotted bass, our Alabama bass don't. Once you get to the other ones, the red eyes, the shoal bass, they don't, they disappear when you impound them. They can't handle that. Um, so, so that's not a problem uh, at all because they are river fish. They just happen to transition the reservoirs when we dam them up. Yeah, we do have some, we do have one, um, drainage that has them in it now that that i mean it, it flows into the sound um so but honestly it gets really turbid below where they're at so i almost think the turbidity is probably going to hold them back more than the salinity influence will um you know i i've not worked much in the northeast part of our state where we do have a lot of coastal rivers that flow into sounds and i kind of thought well you know they probably won't get in there because there's salinity and then my fisheries chief who did work out there said well the salinity in, in those rivers is not as high as you think for a good portion of them and so there's there's that worry like steve said turbidity is something we've seen you know as a limiting factor and you know our good bass lakes here that are around raleigh um the three that you know get a lot of press that mlf fished a couple years ago um they they're they're pretty turbid most of them are and uh so we're hoping that even if someone were to put them in there, that they're not going to take over. Just a couple other points I want to bring out is, you know, talking about the range of these fish now or what it, you know, Alabama bass, what it could be. I mean, I haven't measured it. I haven't taken a 
protractor or whatever and measured it. But I would say that, you know, their introduced range is getting pretty close, if not larger, to their native range right now. So that's pretty scary that, you know, you've got a fish that has a fairly small native range. And now you're, you've got this, this larger introduced range of it. Second thing is, I know we've had some comments from Iowa and folks talking about Pennsylvania. And so one of the things we've done, and Steve kind of alluded to it earlier, is the, the four or five states that have issues right now, um, you know, we, we've gotten together a group of biologists and we talk two to three times a year. Sometimes it's, it's a conference call. Sometimes it's just email. But about a year ago, we decided, you know, there's some states out there that probably state agency biologists that are not in our management group, which is the southeast, that need to know about this because they're probably not even aware of it. I mean, if the anglers aren't, you know, we, we, we take for granted sometimes that state agencies know, you know, everything that's going on two states over. That's not the case. So we've brought in Iowa. We've brought in Indiana, Illinois. Uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. I think I don't know if we've reached out to anybody in PA yet, but they're probably we need to get somebody on the horn for that. Um, I know Kentucky, the state of Kentucky, has just started the genetics testing program. They're hoping they don't see any Alabama bass, but they're waiting for their results to get back so that they can because they do have spotted bass. I mean, Kentucky, right? So, so and as Steve said, you know that's kind of where they creep in, and you don't see them is because they are so close together i mean if you if you don't have spotted bass and you just have smallmouth, then you start seeing them in those mean mouths there are you, you will see the visual signs of them so we're trying to rope other states in we talked to missouri we've talked to arkansas they're in the group we've got some folks from arkansas and um and so you know I, i'm hoping we don't have to pull in the michigans the minnesotas the ohio's but you know I know we're having a joint meeting with some folks in early next year from up that way out of that sort of management unit as, as our professional society is. And I'm hoping that they see how serious this is. Um, and, and again, it's education and it's angler will. I mean, and one other point on angler will, and I brought this up before too, is, you know, when you talked a little bit about in the beginning about tell us, tell us who you are to build some credibility. Um, I would tell you that, and our credibility only goes so far as people, you know, want to let it. Um, and and not surprisingly, and I don't have a problem with this, the a lot of anglers lean look towards the pro anglers uh, for for advice and information. We talk about Gerald Swindle coming on, talk about buzz baits. Well, I would love it if if an angler would come on and talk about how bad Alabama bass are and how you don't want them in your state. And I'm hoping that as, as this goes on and we talk to the pro anglers and we've done a little bit of that, that we can get somebody to pick up that mantle a little bit and run with it. Um, it's just, it's something I'd like to see. Yeah. And I think even like getting a seat at the table, right? Like the, the Bass Nation just had their national championship at Hartwell and mm-hmm. all the state officers and conservation directors and youth directors get together. So like that, that'd be a yep. great place to start as well. It's like, hey. <laughs> you guys are on the front lines. You can reach, you know, how many tens of thousands of club tournament anglers. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, that, that's part of the reason I know like this is probably not the most interesting. I mean, some people are probably interested in this, but like, it's just, it, it's important, right? We need to spread the word so the people understand that this is not, uh, and they know like the, the, uh, the Coosa river is not far from the Alabama river in places in Alabama. Right. And so if they get in the Alabama river, then all of a sudden they're from, 
Alabama to Tennessee to Kentucky, like in a heartbeat, right? And then all of a sudden you're so that it's it doesn't take much in the right watershed to go a long ways. So well, and we've seen them here. I I plotted it out. I mean, they're in except for those northeast coastal rivers that I talked about. They're in about every river drainage we have in the state at some place in the drainage now, and that's that's mm. a twenty year time cycle. That's not yeah. forty or fifty years, and so you know it's it's i mean are they all throughout the drainages no there's still plenty of places that they're not there's places that they probably won't ever be just due to the way they're set up but the fact that we've got them it I, this is the place that i didn't go in my mind when i got into norman i i didn't think that people would start moving them like they have I, but every time you get a new new spot and it's farther away from the last spot now you've got a jump off point for the next spot for the next place people to move them and it's 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 like the gift that you know keeps on giving but not in a good way and um it i mean i remember as a kid going fishing at jordan lake outside of raleigh with my neighbor we had a lake in my neighborhood and bringing home crappy and throwing them in the lake because we didn't want to clean them and that's pretty harmless i mean you know what i thought was harmless and i got to be a fisheries biologist and i realized how dumb that was um there's probably a lot of other things i realized i didn't do that were very smart back then but but um you know in that particular case it was one small lake in my neighborhood um you know doing that even innocently i'm not saying everyone has bad intentions for doing it but um you know, there's huge problems and they're just they're problems we can't get away from we we don't have any technology i've had people ask me before was well, there some kind of genetic you know uh with all the genetic technology and genetic mutations and you know, genetic engineering that's out there is or some. And when you talk to our geneticists, we have a geneticist on staff here who's a PhD and she's extremely smart and way more knowledgeable about genetics than I am. She starts running things down and for every possibility that she can come up with, that maybe there's something down the road. She say, but oh, but this is the problem with that. And you start making these trade-offs that are just crazy, you know, and you and it just it, it's not feasible. So you, you, the, the simple solution is just, you know, don't don't get them in your lake in the first place. So yeah, and, and it sounds easy, but that's where it's where it is. And I think people get tempted, right? Because like you have a, a fishery that's declining. Maybe it's getting mm -hmm. older. It's starting to lose habitat. It's harder to catch largemouth, right? Or the right. The catch rates are going down. It's going through a natural potential cycle mm -hmm. of up and down, mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden like, well, right. Over in that lake, I can go and catch 30, 40 spotted bass every time I go out, and that's a ton of fun, right? And then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. they're like, well, I'll just put some spotted bass in here, and then we'll catch bass all the time. And I think and you're right. I think that's a lot. I think that's a lot of it. I mean, certainly at Norman, it was frustration for years. There were multiple fisheries out there that weren't doing well. I mean, we I won't talk about the striped bass fishery, but that was another one out there that, you know, some people – spent their whole careers trying to fix and didn't get fixed. Um, I think we're in a good spot now there, but it, but again, it, it's like, there's this perception of what the lake should be and it's not. And when they start, you start trying to compare lakes, it's not an apples to apples comparison. And so, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of layers to it. There really are. Yeah. yeah. And to be honest, right. Like there's probably a risk to the pure, Bama, that they get in the watersheds where they start diluting, and then somehow they come back to the native, and then you could have a reverse potentially, right, where we actually 
lose yeah, that so, and it's good distribution where it thrives right right if for instance if people tried to start throwing smallmouth bass into the mobile basin um where they're not native um then theoretically the same thing could happen in reverse um it's really it's really kind of odd because it's usually regardless of which one it is it's the one that gets moved that is the problem you know mm -hmm. So Alabama bass in and of themselves, they're perfectly fine in the Mobile Basin. They tend to be the most numerically dominant bass in most of those reservoirs and in those rivers. Um, and uh, um, and the largemouth make their way kind of around where they are, but they don't eliminate them. I mean, uh, Lake Martin is, is the closest reservoir to here. It's on the Tallapoosa River. It's a big one. It's 46,000 acres. <clears throat> been there for it's coming up on its centennial i think it was impounded in 26 so it's been there a really long time sure people catch largemouth bass in tournaments there all the time yes you usually are going to win with five alabama bass but they they're not gone <laughs> you know um so it, it's 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 more like I don't know that anybody would have necessarily expected Alabama bass to become the aggressor that they are when you look at them in their native range. Um, but you move them outside of their native range and on and they become an absolute monster. Um, and I mean, we have a lot of examples of that happening. Smallmouth bass were the one that was stocked into the hill country area of Texas uh, by the state in the 70s to create a different, uh, an additional fishery and basically came close to wiping out Guadalupe bass through hybridization. So it's not just one fish that does it. Um, yeah. The most extreme example, which is insane, but again, back to where we were in Tennessee, uh, just north of, of Cookville, where the university is, there's several small streams up there that for whatever reason, the state of Tennessee decided in the 60s that they just needed to put red-eye bass in these streams. So again, red-eye bass are a fish that is very pretty, but never gets more than 10 or maybe 12 inches. All these streams have had great smallmouth bass fisheries in them. They put them in there and they immediately started hybridizing with all the smallmouth bass, even a 10-inch fish. I mean, you know, they became the problem, even though down here, they're getting victimized by Alabama bass getting stocked on top of them in Georgia, not here because they're both native here. But, you know, so it just it just goes to show that it it really doesn't matter what the fish is other than a largemouth bass, which seems to leave everybody alone for whatever reason. But but it, it's not just some magic that Alabama bass are the you know, that are always the problem. They're only a problem when they get moved, just like smallmouth bass can be a problem if they get moved. Or apparently red-eye bass can be a problem if they get moved. So so uh, it's moving bass is the biggest problem. And it's just one of those things where we know bad things are going to happen. But we don't know, A, what, and we don't know, B, how bad. So, you know, you're literally playing Russian roulette with your lake or river if you're putting bass in there. Because not, not only do you not know what's going on or going to happen, neither do we. <laughs> you know? And like Lawrence says, it's really a bad thing to find out later that it was a really terrible idea because there's no going back. Absolutely. I think, I think we've covered this. So 
Mm-hmm. If you guys are up for it, I'm gonna open it up for a few more, like just more general bass fishing fisheries questions, uh, things like that. I'm gonna play a quick little spot from a, a part channel partner here, and then we'll come back in 60 seconds and open it up for some other questions. Are you ready to reel in your next home purchase or refinance? Supreme Lending's Dream Team can help guide you through the entire mortgage process from pre-qualification to closing. We have a wide variety of home loan programs in our tackle box, including down payment assistance and first-time homebuyer options. You can ask Hellebass. He trusted us to help finance his home. Contact the Dream Team today by searching Supreme Lending Dream Team or click the link below in the description or scan the QR code on your screen. I think you're muted, Rich. Yeah, you must be. We're back. Sorry. Yeah. So anybody <laughs> that's looking for a you know a new lake place or a, a new place with a bigger garage to store their toys, they can uh, check out the guys from the Dream Team. We're also bass fishermen. So um, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's open it up. Let me look through the starred questions here. Um, yeah. There's a comment from Chuck saying that, uh, you know, he's seen it firsthand down in his area. I think the Lanier spots are Alabama's, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. they are. Yep. Oh, and they were put in there in the 70s. Um, so they've been in there a long time. And honestly, Lake Lanier is probably almost more commonly cited by people who want them in their lake than even the Coosa River reservoirs are. Um, Cause it is, it is a tremendous fishery. Um, now it did completely eliminate the existing largemouth bass fishery that's there. Um, but uh, yeah, they are, they are Alabama spotted bass. So Aaron's from Minnesota. He's saying, should we put uh, gobies in Mille Lacs? Would it become a mini St. Lawrence? <laughs> Hmm, probably not. Um, you know, the, um, so gobies are an interesting thing. I don't know that much about them because I'm not a Great Lakes biologist, although we do have some friends that are, including one that used to be our classmate at Tennessee Tech. Uh, um, you know, so in this case, putting gobies in the Great Lakes didn't affect, what it didn't negatively affect bass as far as we know but it negative negatively affected a lot of other species of fish that were found in those lakes i mean it wiped out an awful lot of benthic native fish that were there filling that niche um and so you know i don't think it's ever a good idea to move a fish even a prey fish somewhere just to benefit fishing when you're when you're eliminating other native fish yeah i'll say i'll say this one one thing that you know where we do have some control so in reservoirs in the particularly in the southeast but all over the united states um if we stock striped bass in the reservoirs in general they can't reproduce there's a few you know examples out there places they can so if we if, as management agency if we deem a lake no longer a good striped bass fishery and we've had a couple of those here that we used to stock and we just never saw stripers 
you know, we can turn stop stocking, and in about five to ten years, those fish are gone. Um, they're not there anymore. Uh, you know, but that's not. There are very few examples of that, and so there's, you know, years ago they came out with some guidelines about what to stock, how to stock, when to stock. <clears throat> Excuse me, but in general. It's just, I mean, there's there's very limited cases where it's 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 worth doing and worth trying um, because the negative consequences, if they occur, are so much, they're so dramatic and they're so long lasting. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that you know, I wouldn't advise it. I I've never been on Malax. I I know where it is, but um, no, I wouldn't advise it any more than I would advise putting them in a lake down in my state. So, yeah, I mean. I, I think it's important for everyone to remember that these are public resources, you know, and so to, to just decide that you're that you or a group or a couple of you or whatever are going to unilaterally alter a public resource for for what you consider to be your own benefit or, or your own group's benefit is is just kind of, I don't know, sketchy. I mean, you know, you, you could be affecting somebody else. And, it's, and and I've made this argument about the Alabama bass thing. Like, oh, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, heck, I fish it's on one of the reservoirs in the Savannah Basin. It's wonderful. It's fun as heck. You're catching the snot out of them. However, it eliminated something else, like the largemouth bass. If you're a guy who likes to fish for trophy largemouth bass or big largemouth bass, let's just say big. Well, you just, you just got disenfranchised by somebody who wanted to spot it, you know, Alabama bass in the lake. Um, and so it just comes down to just a sense of what's right. You know, I mean, is it, is it, is it okay to step on somebody else's pastime because you want to enhance yours? I don't think so. Yeah. So this is interesting. Uh, fish, uh, they said they were fished attorney at Sturgeon Bay, right? Which is on Lake Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Green Bay area. Uh -huh. uh, they didn't want anglers to go past a certain distance not to mix smallmouth strains within the lake. Does that make sense to you guys? I've never heard of that, but it, it sounds like if they were told that, at least you hope that they were told that because there was some gen uh, biological reason that they had some data already that, you know, suggested that there were subspecies or strains in the lake. Um, but I've never heard of that up there. Not, not again. Not to say that it doesn't happen. I just never heard of it. Yeah, I don't know. It would be subspecies. I do know that they there's some genetic differences, you know. But is that? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I mean, I have to assume, like I said, Lawrence said, you have to assume that somebody had data to say that there was differences, and they seem what like, seem like they w must want feel like that's worth preserving. Um, you know, I, I know that. The, the the think the stuff I'm thinking of is more Lake Superior, but but still there are, there's some there's some work there that shows that there's a there's smallmouth bass that stay in the lake and reproduce there, and there's another group of smallmouth bass that actually run up tributary rivers and spawn there, um, and and they are able to distinguish between them using either genetics or odal well, that, that would potentially make sense because right the tournaments take out of sturgeon bay so they're in more of a a bay with connected mm -hmm. rivers and they're probably keeping them from running out into the lake and maybe truly catching what maybe would be a more pelagic 
yeah. fish, right? That like, wouldn't like normally walleyes, come there's rivers. Yeah, there's rivers spawning mm -hmm. walleyes, lakes spawning walleyes, and natural yeah. systems. And there are there are walleye. Uh, they're not subspecies, but genetically right. walleyes in some of those lakes. The, the deep water walleyes, I think they call them the blue pike or something like that. Um, I think that's again Lake Superior. Lake Superior is such a weird lake compared to most of those other Great Lakes. It's the depth and the and the coldness of it. But but yeah, I would have to assume that somebody. I would hope anyway that somebody who knew what they were doing had a good reason to tell them that because that's otherwise kind of a pain in the butt. Um, but so the multiple species or subspecies of smallmouth bass is pretty easy to answer. Uh, as of right now, uh, there's a lot of people who love splitting the things into new species. So this may not be true in 10 years. Um, but as of right now, there are three subspecies slash species of smallmouth bass. You have the one that is over most of the range. It's the one that we have in, in the Tennessee River Basin in Alabama. It's the same one you have in Minnesota. It's the one that would be up in the Great Lakes. Uh, if you if you think of it as a subspecies, you would call it the northern smallmouth bass. Um, and then you have the two really, really what we call range restricted species, the uh, Neosho smallmouth bass, which is found in only part of the Ozarks. Um, I, I a colleague here, Shannon Brewer, works on the, works on those fish. She knows way better than I do the geography about what rivers they are, um, but they are genetically distinct. Uh, they are probably a species because one of the one of the things that she found out in her work on those fish is they're a river only fish. So when they impounded those rivers, they disappeared, just like our river fish over here, the shoal bass and the red eyes. Um, and uh, that Oklahoma actually stocked Tennessee strain, which is northern, in, in those reservoirs to recreate the fisheries because they disappeared without before they realized that that was a bad idea. They do not do that any longer. Um, but one of the coolest things that she found in her research was, you know, it's a drought, it's an arid environment. So sometimes they have these, you know, periods where the reservoir goes down 25 feet for months and then all of a sudden fills back up. And she had she was doing a radio tacking study in one of those streams that flowed into there when the reservoir went down they moved down into what used to be the reservoir and now was a stream and then when it came back up they went right back up into the river so they are really a river fish i don't think there's any oh. doubt that they're actually a separate species and the other one is the washita smallmouth bass that's found more in uh like nor extreme northwest Arkansas in the Washita drainage. Um, that is the one we know the least about. And again, heavily hybridized with northern smallmouth bass that were stocked in some of those reservoirs before anyone realized that there was any difference. This would have been decades and decades ago. Uh, so that's kind of where we are currently with smallmouth bass. It's kind of weird. There's two, these right on the southwestern edge of their of the range of the whole critter. There's these two right next to each other. The Washita and the Ozarks are almost adjacent. And then the entire rest of all of that is, as of right now, is considered one species or one subspecies. Which is interesting because I think a lot of people look at, like, you look at the bass that come out of Ontario, Michigan, Champlain, St. Lawrence. They look one way. And then you look at a Tennessee River smallmouth and at a glance, you would assume they are not the same species. But mm -hmm. so far, genetically and, you know scientifically they have not been delineated from each other correct 
Lauren's talking about a lake just north of Minneapolis, and I have heard I've I've caught smallmouth. I've actually seen smallmouth attempting to spawn. I don't know if they're successful or not, um, but they definitely get caught out of there. But I definitely have heard and may or may not know people that have attempted to either move them from Malax or from the Mississippi River, which is not far away. Right. But uh, so far, I don't think that has been a successful transplant. Um, here uh dustin says uh the dnr in illinois has tried to create many smallmouth populations in some of their lakes doesn't seem to be successful is that common from what you guys know where they try to create smallmouth fisheries and smallmouth don't take off even where biologists think they will i would tell you that it's a black bass thing in a lot of cases i mean um we, you know if, if there's existing populations or you know to try to do enhancement or um, I've never tried to stock a black bass into a place where they weren't before, but I definitely, and we're doing some of it now here, we go a whole nother road, which probably would take us longer than we got on the podcast to talk about F1 bass. We might need to come back another day and do that. But, um, you know, supplemental stocking a black bass in the systems is typically it's a low return proposition. There are cases where it works. Um, we used to try to do that in rivers here after hurricanes. And what we finally figured out is that there was a short-term burst with those stockfish, but natural reproduction was just so much more effective. And over the long haul, you were going to get more bang for your buck by waiting a couple of years and letting those populations re return on their own. And you were going to be just supplementally stocked to try to restart them. It was good in theory, but in practice, it, it didn't really yield many results. So the fact that they were stocking something and it didn't work, um you know that 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 happened years and years ago in fisheries management all across the united states but once the hatchery technology got to a point where we could culture fish or we could transport fish um management agencies said well hey let's try this here see if it works and and in a lot of cases i mean we've got a couple of lakes in north carolina where they stock northern pike um and you look at it and you're like why would they do that well it was because they could um, and, and as biologists today, we kind of think that's silly, but that's what, where the science was back in the forties and fifties. Um, and so, you know, nowadays we wouldn't even entertain. Yeah. Or lack thereof. Yeah. We wouldn't, we wouldn't entertain something like that. So uh, I remember there's, there's, um, um, records of Chinook salmon being stocked into Center Hill Reservoir by Tennessee Wildlife Research Agency. Needless to say, that didn't go well for them. But to answer that question, any just to add any answer to that question, if if they they put them in there and they didn't take, clearly the habitat wasn't there to support it. Because I mean, uh, you know, usually if you're introducing a new fish there, it's going to probably work if there's something there for them. You know, trying to bolster an existing population with stocking is a night is a rare. I mean. I think a lot of people think that works. It almost never does it. I mean, you know, unless unless they the fish are not reproducing on their own. Well, that's a different story. But assuming that the population that you're stocking into is at an equilibrium population, if you try to throw a bunch of fish on top of them, they don't make it because there's a reason why there's that many fish in there, probably. And and uh, unless it's a recruitment problem, then it doesn't work. Um, and uh you know, uh, 
after Lawrence was done and moved on to North Carolina, the last thing I did was a crappie statewide crappie project and state of Tennessee does stock crappie. And at the end of the day, uh, after looking at a variety of reservoirs, big surprise, the places where the stocking works is the places where the fish have really poor recruitment or really, really, really boom and bust recruitment. And the better the natural recruitment was, the worse and worse the stocking looked, you know? And so usually if the fish can do it on their own, the stocking doesn't do anything because like Lawrence said, natural reproduction far exceeds what we can put in there with a hatchery truck. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure the smallmouth bass in California are the the, the Great Lakes Tennessee River variety. Um, Garden variety. Yeah. And I think this is kind of what I hinted at, right? That I think they see that like river smallies and lake smallies tend to look different, but I would assume that's more of an evolution thing. They're just evolving to adapt. It's an, maybe not adaptation to their environment, yeah. maybe is a better way to say it. That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, you know, Heck, you think about, um, just think of largemouth bass. So in, in lakes, you know, something as simple as fish in a lake that have limited food supplies or a different kind of food supply are look long, they're longer and usually a little thinner than the fish that are from another lake with a really good food supply where they're usually shorter and fatter. Um, and it's just just because that's just the way their environment, you know, adapts. They adapt to their environment, um, and so uh, yeah, I would say the river. You know, I, my experience generally for smallmouth bass. Um, you know, I know there's some exceptions to this, but you know, river smallmouth bass tend to be a lot more torpedo shaped than the ones you catch out of reservoirs, and and it certainly in lakes up where you are, where they're little footballs. Um, and I think that just makes, it makes sense because you have that drag on you. You don't necessarily want to be a football. <laughs> it's better and for I, you. Right, like, and I think like, a right, like a, a river smallmouth, you know, you, you have a, a, I just think about it naturally, right? Like, so if you, you, you have a population that spawns, there's going to be a range of tail sizes, right? And a, a fatter, thicker, wider tail is going to serve you better in a river. And so you're going to have a little better chance to survive. Uh -huh. And your buddies that have, thick, you know, wider tails, right? So then there's a better chance that you guys will spawn. And then that over time will create right a slightly different looking smallmouth. Whereas like on Erie or a place with a lot of rocks and you're feeding on crayfish, if you've got a point in your head and you're better adept at getting crayfish out of rocks, you're going to thrive and you're going to spawn with other fish that are share that skill set or unique. Right. So like that, yeah. I, I, at a high level, I think that's why you're seeing that across, you know, I mean, Malax fish look completely different than Mississippi river fish and they're almost same part of the same watershed, yeah. but you know, yeah. they thrive differently and, eat, and, and adapt differently. <clears throat> Seen some questions about silting and reservoirs yeah. and, yeah, so here's the short answer to that. I mean, every reservoir out there is nothing more than a silt trap. Um, and, you know, and, and theoretically without dredging, um, and we won't open that story, but, you know, at some point in, in the history, geological history of the earth, if the dam's still there and there's enough sediment brought in, I mean, the whole thing will fill in. And I, I've seen 
at least one reservoir in, that I used to cover, which is High Rock Lake. I've seen the volume of that lake, even in the 20 years I've been here, portions of it reduced due to sedimentation. It's got a lot of urbanization and some agriculture above it. Um, and, you know, it's got a, a good catchment area at the top of the reservoir, just the way the reservoir is shaped. And, and there's a creek arm up there that's, you know, at some point in the next 10 years, unless they dredge it, it's going to be, you're going to have an oxbow situation, similar to what you have in rivers where, you know, the channel moves and just do the natural occurrences and you get these oxbows formed. And so, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're silt traps. Um, and, and some, again, depending on the watershed and the way, the depth of the lake and all that kind of stuff, it, it you can see impacts to that. So. Yeah, the geology really dictates, you know, or land use, you know, mm -hmm. but, but there's also a geological, a broader scale thing. For instance, Kansas is one that I can tell you for sure. They have seen absurd loss of reservoir volumes uh, just because their their soil is more mobile than ours. I and mean, it could Nebraska be- Nebraska as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of those some of those reservoirs have experienced just over the sake of my career, like a, a 60 percent decline in the reservoir volume that for us over here in the southeast would take a century. I mean, we just don't have in the most for the most part that kind of sediment mobilized because our soils are different. I mean, we have Thank a lot of clay that doesn't move as much, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and, and so that that plays into it as well but they all do trap sediment on some level <laughs> the hat trick of death well we just uh we just actually got we don't have asian carp but we just actually got uh zebra mussels confirmed in a quarry that's adjacent to lake norman so we we would have two close to two of the three if they got in the lake and i'm hoping we can get them out of the quarry the zebra mussels before they get in the lake so um yeah Hopefully we don't find out how uh, Asian <laughs> carp and Alabama bass, you know, fare together. Yeah, we're going to so. have Asian carp in this state before too. Well, we technically have them in the Tennessee drainage, but we that's just a small sliver of the state. But at some point, they're going to be in the Mobile vein, Basin, and God only knows what that's going to be like. Um, I could see a scenario where zebra mussels can interact with an out with the likelihood of Alabama bass doing well. Um, because if they get in a eutrophic reservoir, the one thing I, I don't know much about zebra mussels because I don't really have not worked where they're a problem. But one thing I know they do is they, they're really good at clearing up the water. And so you could take a green lake that, that might not be that attractive to Alabama bass and turn it into a perfect Alabama bass lake. And then, so then in a way there would be a synergistic effect. Um, but that again would just that would be just a random thing, but other, but yeah, none of those are good news. There really. are not many lakes up by me that don't have zebra mussels. Now it feels like. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of real close to the great lakes where they all started. Yeah. So, you know. yeah, for sure. It feels like it has to be a lot more than just boats though. I think there has to be some other like birds and other things that are spreading. Oh, sure. Like, got to i mean if there's a lot of them you know if there if, if birds are taking dips in those places that are just have a ton of them it's hard it's going to be certain times of the year it's going to be hard for them not to carry you know villagers with them and stuff like that i would guess um 
Let's see, I had a couple of questions here. Hmm. So what do you, I mean, you know, this, we, we talk a lot about education uh, of the not spreading bass, right? Not, not doing bucket biology, not, not moving fish, right? And that we need to raise the education on that. I also, to me, and I want to your guys' thoughts on this, I think as much as what Ray Scott did with don't kill your catch and catch and release, I think we kind of need to start talking about selective harvest, right? Like, what, do you, what are your guys' thoughts on? Like, I think there's two almost catch and release to a fault in some areas and some fisheries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so um, when we look at, you know, and Steve can comment on this because he's got a lot of experience with this too. But when we look at our, our bass populations now, we look at putting regulations on our largemouth. I say bass for us in North Carolina, it's at least where I'm at, it's mostly all largemouth. Um, you know, really the only impact outside of natural mortality, any kind of fishing mortality, is, is delayed release from tournaments. You know, and that varies. Some tournaments do a great job of holding fish and releasing them. You know, other ones don't. Um, and so, you know, you go to the ramp on a Monday morning, particularly in the summertime, and you may see some dead bass. But, you know, having said that, um, there's not a lot of harvest out there. And in our reservoirs here, there's a, the bigger reservoirs, there's only really a, a few maybe that I could say, well, they probably need some harvest, you know, that maybe that would help them. Where we see that a lot is in our mid-sized to smaller reservoirs that are, you know, what we call our municipal impoundments, where we do get stunted largemouth populations, and it would really help for them to take some some fish out. And you're right. I mean, I I think it's I think we're at a point where the catch and release ethic, the pendulum of that, is maybe swung a little bit too far, and it's uh it's it's a little bit hard to get it in in folks' head that you know it's it's okay to harvest that largemouth bass and take it home. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's actually in some situations, like I said, where I'm at, particularly one of my districts, it's got a lot of small reservoirs in it around Greensboro, uh, Burlington, North Carolina, right along that I-85 corridor. And, uh, there are a few of those that definitely could use some more harvest, but it's hard. It's hard to encourage that. Yeah. And it's the right, right? Like ideally it'd be great for people to be taking limits of 10 to 14 inch <laughs> bass home, right? Like mm-hmm. ideally not taking a limit of two and a half to three and a half pound marshmallow. <laughs> yeah, I really like the, the in fisherman con- concept of selective harvest, um, you know, because uh, it does two things at, the, at, at once. For one thing, there shouldn't be a stigma for keeping bass. There just shouldn't. I mean, you know, you shouldn't have to worry about being threatened or anything like that, which I know people have just in, in the study. Yeah, it's weird on Facebook, like people jump on people really. And it's oh, yeah. unfortunate. Now it's one thing when somebody has got a stringer of like four and a half to six pounds smallmouth, and they've got a whole limit of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, so mean, they did buy their license. They do have their rights, but well, like, right. that's, that's not ideal. <laughs> yeah. And but, so uh, that's the other part. But of if it, somebody's got that. a bunch of pound and a half to two and a quarter mm-hmm. pound largemouth and they want to eat them, like that's probably good for most of our lakes, to be honest. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's the other part of selective harvest that I like is that it, it, it you know, and, and, and the way I think of it as a population dynamics person is replacement cost in terms of years. Okay. So, um, and, and also, and how many of them are around at each size class, each age class. So fish die, right? They, they die without us ever doing anything because there's no, they don't live forever. They're not immortal. So, um, 
you know, so there comes a point in every fish, you name it, no matter what species it is, there comes a point where these fish become the, the certain sizes, ages, whatever you want to think of it as, they start to become rare and they and a, and a lot of investment was taken. They've they jumped through a lot of hoops already, natural mortality hoops to get where they are. Um, so that is is a judgment call, and it, that var- and that's why I kind of think of ages more than I think of sizes because right. up north that size that length is a much smaller number than it is down here um you know ideally you want to harvest it between like two and four years old probably bass let's just say bass and keep it in the same group because it also varies by species um you know but but assuming that your bass are living to be eight ten to twelve which is what they are down here you know you probably want to keep your harvest within ages two to four, let's just say, you know, maybe five occasionally, you know, and if you do that, you know, you're probably never going to hurt the population very much because our natural mortality rates down here for bass are roughly 20 to 25%. That means every year, 20 to 25% of them just die. Which means like every five years, basically the whole lake turns over. I mean, roughly, I mean, like yeah, on average. Yeah, I mean, you know, and so, you know, you removing that fish isn't that big a deal because, you know, he's got, he's already got, you know, not quite a coin flip, but he's got a high chance he's not going to make it to the next year anyway. A higher chance than any of us would want to have, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And so to think that you have to, that, you, you know, you, you have some horrible reason that you don't need to harvest that fish, you know, like you said, down here. For, I would say 12 to 16 inch fish, bass, largemouth, or smallmouth even. I mean, Alabama bass, go ahead. If you want to keep them, keep them. I mean, you shouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say keep 10 fish every time you go out there, but I mean, you know, you want to keep them, keep them because there's plenty of them. But yeah, I, if you're worried about how many big fish you're going, you're, you're, you want to have, then when they get to that four or five pound range, I think they're probably better off tossed back because they have a much better chance of reaching eight to 10 pounds than a, a two pounder, which has probably one in a hundred chance of getting to eight or 10. But by the time they get to four or five, they've got a lot, a pretty good chance of going, of getting bigger because they've already jumped through multiple hoops of natural mortality. And they've gotten to the size where they don't have a lot of natural predators. Right. right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yep. Well, you know, and the other, and the other and I, in my understanding of, how net i mean why selective harvest right each lake basically has a biomass that it can hold right so it can either hold simple terms it can hold a hundred two pound bass right or it can hold 45 pound bass right like um yeah so it to some degree the the reason lakes get stunted is because they get too many fish right and there's a thousand one pound bass it can't have any 10 pound bass and that's I mean, especially like... true up where you are in all those natural lakes because your lakes are the most stable ecosystems aquatic ecosystems on the north in the north american continent now a lot of them have been around for 20 to twenty-five thousand years since the last ice age you know they are at equilibrium they don't have drastic water level changes they don't have giant spates of water that flood through them they're very stable and so you, that is a hundred percent true up where you are. They are all essentially at equilibrium and have been 
for long before white people set foot on this continent, you know? <laughs> and so you have that situation up there where this is, this is your biomass. Just how do you want it to be apportioned? That's, that's what it is. You know, down here, it's a little more complicated because our recruitment is not the same, you know, wet years and dry years and all really make a difference, you know, and uh, by the way, the Mississippi river is the same way. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not stable, you know, it's, Absolutely. It's, it's more than natural lakes, you know? So, so there you can have these big year classes or you can have crappy year classes and your, your fish can, your population can fluctuate. We really see that down here. And, uh, yeah. Um, so it's not quite as easy, but you are a hundred percent right that the whole northern third of the country, you know, coast to coast, where where uh, well at least from I don't know if there were, I don't know if there are glaciers over in the North Pacific Northwest or not. I'm more familiar with the, everything east of the Rockies, but you know, there's that line where the, the glaciers carved all those natural lakes out, and I mean they're all very stable ecosystems, um, you know. And on the flip side of all that. I can't tell you, and and I mean, I, I know this is, I'm never going to win this battle and, and I'm perfectly fine with it, you know, but people who want to keep a trophy fish for the wall, I mean, sometimes I think they have to like go to the confessional because they're, they're, you know, they're like, oh my God. I mean, and if someone dares to put, make a skin mount, they're like ostracized, you know, it's like, oh my God. Well, I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't want to spend three times as much for the same mount. Um, you know, I, I can, I, I tell people all the time, look, unless you're someone that has to have 50 fish mounts on the wall, which is rare, I don't think you're doing any problems keeping one big fish over your lifetime. <laughs> you know, you're not, you know, and, and I mean, a big fish usually is near the end of its lifespan. You putting that back doesn't mean if you put a 10 pound largemouth bass back. That doesn't mean it's going to be 12 pounds in a couple of years. It probably means it's going to be dead. So go ahead and keep that one fish. And if you want to, nobody should be shamed about it and, and nobody should feel remorse about it. And nobody should, should get on them about that either. I mean, it's one other lifetime. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I have, I have about eight or 10 mounts, one of each species, every single one of them is a skin mount and I could care less. <laughs> You know, because I'm not, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've got my largemouth on the wall. I'm never, I'm never getting another one. I mean, you know, uh, so, so, you know, you can get a little whack. There can be a little wackiness there. You know, it's not just the harvest. It's also the poor people who want to keep a fish to mount and they're acting like you, you took the neighbor's kid in to get them stuffed and put on your wall, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. I'll also say too, something that people need to consider too, when they think about this is, as fisheries management agency biologists, you know, we we take harvest into account. And we set regulations. So we're, you know, for the most part, we're counting on harvest. Um, you know, slot limits were a big thing years ago. Um, it was a concept that in theory would work, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of harvest below those slots. So, you know, and then those fish out on the front end. And so in most cases, we've taken those off um just for that reason but we, we we do that when we um when we set regulations we build in harvest so um if you're worried about that you know we i i, I don't know of a there's been a handful maybe of bass populations over the years that have been adjusted because of i won't say over harvest but higher harvest than what we 
had originally thought was going to happen or whatever. But for the most part, you know, our harvest levels are such that our regulations are, we don't even need them in some cases really because people aren't harvesting fish. Um, really what we see in a lot of cases is it's limiting what folks at fish tournaments can bring in, you know, to the scales is the, is those limits are governing that. But, um, I have only seen a few places, some of our coastal rivers where we have some subsistence fishing going on, where people will harvest bass at a higher level. But for the most part, I think Steve quoted was quoted the other day, like three to 5%, you know, harvest, you know, in most of our parts, that's a hundred percent. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really low. Oh, 10% way, way below natural mortality rate. And, and, in a population dynamics context, a regulation is only doing something if harvest is roughly equivalent to natural mortality. Otherwise, most of the components of your mortality is natural and you can put any regulation on there you want. You're not doing anything because natural mortality is controlling your size structure of the population. So if, yep. if harvest doesn't reach 10 to 20 percent, it's not going to matter. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah, it's what we call you are. I would guess your natural mortality rate of bass up there might be more like 15%. So, um, cause they live longer, they grow slower and live longer. So your natural mortality rate is certainly lower. Um, so a lower level of harvest up there would still make a difference if you will. Um, but down yeah, here with smaller, our higher mortality right. rate. And obviously some of our, our smaller lakes can be more impacted easier than some mm -hmm. of our bigger lakes. Cause we have right. a lot of right. 500 acre lakes. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Victor, to your point, make them taste like walleye. Well, first of all, <laughs> bass are sunfish. I think most people agree that sunfish and crappie are delicious. Now, do I think three to five pound bass when they get real thick and old are good? Not really. But like, have you tried a 10 to 12 to 13 inch bass out of clean, cold water? They're pretty delicious. You can't tell them during soon a I mean, I think if, if I think it's 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 a it's a stigma, and I think if people like had a blind taste test, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a bluegill and a bass, you know, similar oh, size. Probably uh, not. No. And here's another fun fact: northern pike are delicious if you know how to fillet them. And I like to have a thing that says "Eat a pike, save a jackhammer." That's one of my personal slogans. <laughs> so I think we need to harvest more small bass, and we need to harvest a lot more pike because. Uh, tungsten is expensive, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did my master's work on northern pike in South Dakota. I learned how to fillet them things. They're good. I like them a lot. And if you get them out of cool water, mm -hmm. and they're you know, I mean, we we get shallow pike out of warm water, and and they get you know they pike some of the pike do get that kind of like slimy or wormy or right. I mean, but if you get one out of cold water that's healthy and clean, they're they're delicious. So. So, yeah, cool. Any, uh, let's see if there's any other questions here. We were pretty much. Somebody, did, somebody asked one um, that I'll answer real quick. They ask about aging fish. How do you tell the age of a fish? So years and years ago, um, biologists determined that scales were an aging structure. Um, but what we found is that it's not really a good aging structure and makes sense, right? Especially down here, you know, up north there is, some utility potentially of them because you have that change in seasons and they lay different growth marks down but scales can get rubbed off they can regenerate their problems with them really, really the tried and true method is what's called an otolith o-t-o-l-i-t-h that 
translates to ear stone. It's a bone in the fish's inner ear, and it functions just like a tree ring, like rings on a tree. The negative, the, the, the positive of it is, is extremely accurate. The negative of it is it's lethal. So um, what we what we do here is we subsample fish. So if we're out, like my folks are out right now doing crappy sampling, and, uh, you know, they're getting, some of these lakes are getting five and 600 fish a week, easy, setting nets. We're not killing five or 600 fish. We're, we're taking a subsample of those, and then we'll extrapolate those information, the lengths and the weights and the ages. We'll extrapolate all that to the entire sample out. But um, it kind of what we, we've determined over the years is if you're going to invest in taking age data, that's something that's important to you, you're better off, you know, taking the best you can get because even if it does come at a little bit of a cost um, to a few fish because accurate data is better than a lot of data that's not really accurate. That kind of makes sense, right? But um, So that, that's how we we age fish. There's a few little exceptions out there for other species, but when we're talking about bass, otoliths are the yeah. way to go. But I mean, for a, for a person just fishing, length is a pretty good indicator, right? Like, yeah, it for somebody that's trying to decide if it's an old fish or a young fish in Minnesota or Alabama, and they're just not fishing, and is this like a fish? I mean, like, there are rules and exceptions, but like in general, <laughs> length so, is a pretty good indicator. So a great a great way to to find that out for where you're at is find out where your local fisheries management agency office is. Call a biologist up, and they're going to be able to tell you for that particular lake. Because chances are they're going to have years and years of data if they've been there, the lake's been sampled, and they're going to be able to pull it right up and give you a pretty good estimate of what that is for that particular lake based on length. Yeah, the, 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 the reality is, is that so length and age are pretty tightly linked up to a point. Um, fish, fish age, uh, length age uh plots graphs whatever you want to call it they're they're basically like an asymptote uh they they rise and then they level off and so uh and what happens is is that there are there's a surprisingly high amount of individual variation in in growth in fish and um so everybody toots along at a pretty good pace and then when they they all get sexually mature then all of a sudden their, their energy that they're eating goes two directions. It goes into either growth or it goes into gonadal growth. And I, I think that invests a little bit more in females than it is in males. Um, but, but there's a lot of things going on that honestly, we don't even understand that the individual variation in growth is fascinating because, you know, um, you can start having some really crazy things. Um, you know, uh, down here, a five pound bass, five pound largemouth bass, could be six years old or it could be 10 depending on you know what how good of a uh, life they've held they've had um and uh so so once you start talking about the big fish it's it's a little harder to tell how bit how old they are because it is really crazy how there are just fast growing fish and we're not sure if that's genetics or if it's something like this fish has just got it figured out you know <laughs> Uh, or its diet is slightly different. Um, that work, as far as I know, has never been done on any fish, let alone these, maybe like aquaculture fish, but that's just artificial, you know. Um, but it's kind of fascinating. I mean, crappies are really notorious for that. I mean, they're, you know, that they're crazy. Um, you know, uh, down here, we, we, we do something often where you can plot like, uh, 
So you, after you age all your fish, you can do what scatter plots and just like length. And so you think about it, your ages are whole numbers, but the lengths are all kinds of numbers. So you end up with a bunch of overlapping points. And sometimes they're like the, the, those spread of those lengths can overlap over like four age classes. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> what is going on here? You know, I mean, there's, there's eight inch crappie that are two years old and there's eight inch crappie that are six years old. Um, and, and so, uh, that's extreme bass are usually not that bad, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a little harder than you would think to tell you can, you can get it like, like Lawrence said, you can call your DNR offices. They should be able to not only just give you an estimate over the phone anymore, they should be able to email you an honest to God. Like I wouldn't even say, I mean, they might give you an equation if they're cruel, make you use a calculator, but they could also literally just say age one, two, three, four, five, six, seven inches. And this is your average length at all of them for your lake or river or whatever. And that's good enough for you to know what it should be with the realization that there is that individual variation and it could be off by a couple of years, depending on whether you have a fast grower or a slow grower on your hands. Awesome. Well, I feel like this is a good stopping point. We went a little over two hours. Uh, I appreciate your guys' time. I really enjoyed having the conversation. Um, I know Steve Sammons is on Instagram. You can look him up. I'm sure he would love to answer all your biology questions about Alabama bass. And, um, <laughs> there's a link in the description of the report. Uh, I think we're going to do a Friday night show with Bateman, and we're going to get into some, like, you know, MLF talk, you know, you know, the, the real sizzly, exciting stuff. But tonight we had an occasional show and I thought it was good and we need to mix these in. And uh, I appreciate you guys coming on. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Keep, keep up the great work. I really appreciate you guys making time. Um, if you guys came in late, bunch of good information, rewind it, watch it on a replay, watch it on Facebook, download on your favorite MP3, just search Hellabass and your favorite podcast. You can catch the replay. Thanks again, guys. Uh, as always, we're here to help you catch more good big big bass and suck less. As always, thanks to all of you that hung in till the end of this podcast. This has been another episode of Hellabass Bass Fishing Podcast Experience. Please consider sharing this with any of your bass and buddies and friends. This is the best way for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Also, don't forget to search Hellabass on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or just about anywhere else so that we can connect in more ways. As always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less.